doing research on this solved a, a great mystery for me, which we'll get into when we when we go to record uh, the episode. Good. There was a part, there was a, a mystery in my my own life that I was always like, that's very strange. And then doing research, it's like, oh, that explains that. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast with John Cribbs and Chris Funderberg. We are here today with our good friend, Mr. Tom Vaughn, director, screenwriter, and professor of screenwriting at the University of Houston for how many years now, Tom, have you uh, been there? Uh, I've been teaching there about five years now. Excellent. Well, go Cougs. I have no go idea Cougs. how they've been doing, but... Uh, <laughs> not not our best year. Oh, sorry to hear. <laughs> well, boohoo, your Astros just destroyed my Phillies last year in it's one of the true. saddest World Series. So I'm not going to feel sorry for any yeah. Houston sports. As a right diehard now. Astros fan, I I have no room to complain about any of our other <laughs> games. I will say that with the Astros, I like Jalen Hurts so much that I'm happy as Astros won. Really, at the end of the day, okay. you know, I've, I've come around to like the silver lining is Jalen's very happy for that happening. And especially I, since I got to tell you, I had a bet with uh, with my wife of how long it would go in the podcast before you bitched to me about <laughs> the Astros, and it went about 90 seconds. Uh, Which one of you won? <laughs> Which one of you won the bet? Oh, I won the bet. Good. Oh, yeah. She's like, she he's not going to bring it up. <laughs> course i would it's the most important thing in the world to me i'll just jump in to say i don't follow baseball like i don't have any skin in the game at all except that my parents are lifelong orioles fans so this is the one year i'm going to be rooting oh, against your astros yeah <laughs> so I want a good, year. good for years. them yeah, really just for my folks i want them to go all the way <laughs> So in addition to to teaching at uh, uh, to teaching at university, you also run screenlighting classes and offer courses on top of that in a general way. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, uh, I have uh, online courses that I teach um, that are asynchronous classes and uh, their videos lessons through that I've been teaching about 20 years. So being able to take that structure and kind of replicate that into those videos is, has been really, really effective. I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I did them and, <laughs> and they ended up being like, just, just perfect for those, um, you know, for taking courses at the same time. And then I have a weekly email uh, that's basically a free screenwriting lesson every Tuesday morning. And that's at storyandplot.com. Excellent. And you're also your Twitter account is a great follow if you're a, a screenwriter as well. There's a lot of, um, you know, sort of screenwriting advice accounts out there on on Twitter. So it's sort of hard to know how much of it is is dross and how much you can listen to. And I find yours to be very sharp and clear advice, you know, that it's that a lot of the times it's not even necessarily it's sort of de-emphasizing the big picture to talk about here are tools and techniques that you can actually apply in a very clear way. So you're an excellent, excellent follow in that regard on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah, that's the benefit of teaching for 20 years. Is you have <laughs> better, a lot of, better tweets. Yeah, you've got a lot to talk about, a lot of notes over the years. You've had a lot of students. Uh, and of course, I write professionally. So you know, like that, that, that brings a very different perspective to it. Just being a working screenwriter who also teaches is, uh, you know, you don't, you don't find both of those things uh, too often. 
And John, do you, uh, do you want Tom or John, we should list some of your credits before we we dig into this, because you came to us, we've done a few other episodes with you, some of my, my favorite episodes we've done. Actually, our second most popular episode of all time is you talking about Winchester, is the really? film wrote well, with Helen Mirren. Uh, and yeah, it's right behind our Dario Argento episode. And then we have a great I don't mind that that's, that's perfectly <laughs> fine. Um, and then also the, uh, your top 10 horror screenplays episode is also a very, very popular episode for I, us. So. I think about that conversation a lot of, of, you know, talking about our favorite over the last 10 years, our favorite films. And, uh, that was really fun. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. And so what did you, what did you bring to us today? to to talk about for this episode you had you had suggested this this pairing why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've gotten us into tom Ball. yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember is it was it john who also likes it because i think you had mentioned it because i because the one of i love these two movies and i and i did not realize they were the same director until much later for whatever yeah. reason i had just kind of missed that point but uh, Vice, Vice Squad is one of my favorite films of all time. And yeah, I've seen it more times than I could possibly count. It's one of those wonderful surprises that we had as kids where we would rent movies we weren't quite sure about or mm -hmm. watch movies late night on cable and then just get blown away by something. Oh my God, Vice Squad's going into it blind. I mean, it was just like, Oh my punch in the face, like from yeah. the screen. Like, yeah. yeah. Just so intense out of the gate. I feel like I saw it on like USA up all night with Rhonda Shear. It's like, that's the kind of setting I feel like everybody saw this movie in. I am pretty sure I saw it on VHS. Like I yeah. think, I think it was VHS for me. And uh, I can't remember if I saw it with my brother Lance or it was just that time where we were watching so many, um, VHS movies, uh, but I, I it was direct, definitely during that period where probably no more than 12, 13 years old <laughs> watching this movie. And I remember uh, maybe like 10, 15 years later in my 20s or 30s, I got a chance to rewatch it. And it was even better than I had remembered. It was, uh, you know, just coming from it from an adult perspective and seeing the filmmaking and seeing the nuance and seeing the act like the performances in it. Uh, so it, it is a film I am I am always uh, eager to talk about because not everyone has seen it. Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference with it is it was unavailable on Blu-ray uh, for a very long time. And so by the time DVD was switching over to Blu-ray, there was never a transfer of Vice Squad. And so there was a couple of generations who who just didn't even know the movie really existed, which is one of the reasons why I, lo I love to talk about it. So I get to introduce it to, <laughs> yeah. to, to so many people. Uh, and then there is uh, another film uh, also directed by Gary Sherman, which I definitely have a shared experience with my brother Lance, where we saw it in the drive-in movie theater. Oh, wow. In night when it first came out in 19, was it 80 or 81? And I was 11 years old. And I have no idea why an 11 year old was seeing that movie, let alone <laughs> in a drive in drive in movie in a car of all places. Uh, and I do. It's one of those memories that is so grotesque that I have to ask Lance. 
uh, and Lance is the one who introduced us all. To yes. Me, yeah. I remember. Yeah. So I have to ask Lance, it's like, is that, is that a fictionalized memory that we saw that in a drive-in? And like, or is, <laughs> did that really happen? Or did I converge a bunch of memories uh, into this, basically this fictionalized account of seeing this gruesome, gruesome horror film uh, with very dark themes, much darker than I knew at the time. At the time, I just knew gore and scares. Like I didn't yeah. quite know what they were talking about or, you know, senses of betrayal and paranoia and and like so, so, so much that's going on in that film. Uh, but the fact that it's by the same director, and I know you guys like to focus on like very narrow topics for a short period of time. <laughs> Like I would be happy just talking about Vice Squad for an entire yeah. podcast, or just talking about Dead and Buried for an entire podcast. But yeah, to be able to combine them and talk about the two, uh, uh, it's just very exciting to me. And I just I love the idea of sharing these films with others. Yeah, I'm they're all fascinated now because you know I was wondering what kind of approach, what kind of angle you had on these two different movies. You saying that you didn't even realize they were by the same director makes me even more fascinated. <laughs> Because Gary Sherman is such a has had such a weird career. Yeah, you know he has his first film in the early seventies with Deathline, which he makes over in England. Uh, which is why I thought of, he was British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got that kind of Richard Lester thing where you're like, he made so many movies in England that just yeah. assume that he's that's where he's I, from. I thought Kubrick was 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 British. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute, um, he's American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, were you going to say something? I believe I believe his mom is British. I believe he went and made Deathline there because his mom was living in London, and that's why he he went there. I don't know that, if she's English or not. But that makes he, sense because that's a very British movie. Yes, oh, it's yes, very so and very inveterately British. But I think yeah. comparing him to Richard Lester is a good comparison of. I'm just going to assume that guy is completely an, an Englishman until. You know, until you're 40 and you're like, what the hell? He's from like Sheboygan. I can't believe this. I thought I thought Tony Gilroy was British because his scripts had underlined slug lines. So like, <laughs> I, I assumed he was British until until I had one of my students go. No, the Gilroys are not British. <laughs> they, that's funny, too. I was thinking he there's something very British about him as well. I don't know that I had it crystallized in my head that Gilroy is British. But if you had made me guess, I probably would have guessed that he is. Just That's his funny. name, Tony Gilroy, sounds like <laughs> Yeah. <British. laughs> but yeah, but Sherman, so he makes Deathline, which is the most, uh, oh my God, the most hammer horror movie that's not a hammer horror movie. <laughs> um, and then he kind of disappears for like a decade. Like he does TV and stuff, and he's definitely working and, and writing and things like that. But it's not until Death, Dead and Buried, almost a decade later, that he kind of- Was that his following things. film? Uh, that's first one for theatrical, I think. I think he did a yeah. few. He did one like based on, um, oh, what's his name? The the cult, the people's. Uh... Yes, I was going to say, I don't go without mentioning Mysterious 2, Mysterious. which is he made a movie about Marshall Applewhite and um, and and his, his co-partner, the woman. the woman from the Heaven Gates cult, who would kill themselves like 18 years later. In 1982, he made a movie about them, a made-for-TV movie. That's deeply strange movie. Have, Have you, you seen this movie? Yeah. After oh, Dead and Buried. After, uh, it's 82, so it's like, he made it beforehand, it sat on the shelf for a couple years, okay. 
because it's a TV movie and you see it. It's like, why is he talking? It's sort of treating them like the cult is real and they are in communications with aliens and have some like cosmic. Yeah. I love that shit. We're going to take this like it's totally serious. Yeah. And then knowing it's them and it's like 15 years before they kill themselves and their cult and everybody. uh, It's, it's great. It's great. It's a strange, it makes for a strange experience. Um, but yeah, but so he shoots thing, right? It's not like yes, they're play, like I'm not like no, they're called like, like just like she and he in the movie, which is I believe what they called themselves in real life as well. That they would just sort of like denameified and depersonified themselves to a to a certain extent, um, and that's and he makes that and the he shoots that a, a couple years before uh, for this stuff, and it sits on the shelf for a while. Sorry to interrupt you going through it, John, but. But that's an important one to me because it's a deeply bizarre thing. That's the thing is Gary is Gary Sherman gets involved with projects that are all it, they're, they're consistently weird enough takes on things that you have to give him credit as not just being a journeyman director, but like uh, the projects are consistently weird enough ideas that you're like, he's you've got to give him some credit for it, even he's, though he's, he's not a screenwriter. Yeah, he's very clear sensibility. As yeah. far as like what he finds interesting and what I'm going to focus on, um, his patience as a filmmaker uh, is really interesting as far as his shots and his particularly in Deathline, like where yeah. he just linger. Yeah, linger. Um, it's got that one like endless tracking shot. It's got it's got a shot in it that's like a seven minute shot yeah. in that movie, too. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I'm, yeah. and you guys know film history better, better than I do, but I, I did not realize, and I, I am totally convinced that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was influenced by Deathline. Like I, like it, it, I had only seen it recently. I had rewatched it, yeah, or I had watched it for the first time recently, and, uh, it, it was shocking. It never interested me because cannibalism, for whatever reason, is just like has never not, me as a topic. Me too. Like, the like can just, all the cannibal movies don't do it for me. Yeah, they right. like oh, they're cannibalized. I don't care. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so I finally, I finally watched it, and uh, the atmosphere down in the tunnels, the way he'll just kind of pan across the bodies. And and these old corpses that have been there hanging on the wall, it had uh, uh, very much a Texas Chainsaw Massacre feel to me. And I and I I can't think of any any scene or film. And again, my knowledge of film history is not as good as y'all's. I'd be curious if if uh, if there's anything like that beforehand that was that gruesome, that much on corpses bones just kind of rotting around living and the, and that and the kind sympathizing of, of the monster too of the cannibal yeah you know the way he does is yeah very kind of the way the approach that they did to the leatherface i absolutely agree with that yeah I also could, the I say toby hooper seeing raw meat as it was called yeah exactly yeah raw meat yeah i was gonna say the american title could of raw meat could have been what texas chainsaw was called you know yeah uh and and so was raw meat the american title yeah it was released so, in America and like hacked as up. Rom- 
and it was it was hacked up as well like it was cut down so that it didn't linger as as much on things oh man that's was, such the strength of the film is just yeah helping. well that's you hear why he didn't make another feature for like 10 years he's a guy who consistently and this happened on dead and buried as well had problems with his producers and yeah. would sort of be like i'm not making any more movies you you can't make the movie you want the producers get in the way this happens over and over again to him where he feels like he's being forced to do things he doesn't want to do to his movies i, I am 100 so sympathetic the, it's in itself the the absolute nader being his problems on poltergeist 3 yeah. where it's that that just sounds like an experience that's soul deadening it just sounds like the most awful thing you could go through as a filmmaker. Well, look at that. It's another top. Toby Hooper comparison. He made Poltergeist 3. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it is. Um, you're kind of trained more for it as a screenwriter to to have like your stuff ripped apart and ripped <laughs> pieces and, and having just, you know, had that experience with The Haunting of the Queen Mary, which was, you know, just released in August. Yeah. And and that that film is unrecognizable to the script that I had that was greenlit. I mean, just like I ended up with story credit because the script had changed so much. And um, it I can't imagine as the director where like you are ultimately responsible for every frame. Um, and having that same same challenge. Now, I, I am also because it's usually the director that ruins my shit. <laughs> so kind of like well fuck off now you know how it feels yeah uh but at the same time of just being the person ultimately responsible and you can't and you can't even get your cut you can't even get like the thing that interested you about that moment and like yeah i just can't imagine how heartbreaking that is to be that close to the finish line yeah people are screwing with shit yeah, well, that's what's crazy. We'll get into it about what happened with Dead and Buried. But when you hear what the producers sort of forced on him, it makes you go, well, I, I can't imagine the movie without that. But, John, what were you what you were going to say? You were taking us through. Are we just skipping over Phobia? This movie oh, from 1980. The perfect transition into Dead and Buried <laughs> is to mention Phobia from 1980, uh, which ultimately was a film directed by John Huston, which he, uh, Gary Sherman and Ron Shusett have a, a story credit on. So I think they had an original script that then kind of got taken over and rewritten by like three other people and became the piece of shit that is phobia. You know, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, a, a movie more if, if you told me that there were, you know, script problems and the director changing things and producer forcing things and be like, yeah, probably the result of it would be phobia. I would not be surprised. <laughs> and the name Ronald Shusett, I don't know that that's going to be immediately recognizable to every writer. He was one of the co-writers on Dead and Buried with Dan O'Bannon. Who are Shusett and O'Bannon, John? They are the writers of Alien. <laughs> that's, the, that's the main thing. I mean, obviously, you know, there's the background with Dark Star and, uh, uh, you know, Dan O'Bannon being working with John Carpenter and then being involved uh, doing uh, Hodorowski's Dune that ultimately didn't get made. And then he writes uh, the alien script and ends up uh, bringing in Ronald Shusett, who is the guy who comes up with some of the most famous things like the um, alien, you know, coming out of the chest and things like that. So they oh, was that Shusett? Uh, that was Shusett's contribution to that wow. script. Yeah, that's a significant contribution. The and... kind of thing it was like, how do we get the alien? This is this is weird to like hear about this, read about this, because they say we couldn't think of a way that the alien would get on the ship. We had to think of a creative way that he could be smuggled aboard. Oh, inside the body. 
And you hear that and you're like, oh, that's such a cool thought process. But like, was it really a problem? How to get the alien? Like, how about he just walks onto this ship? Like, what a weird <laughs> thing to get stuck on. But, it's you know, it's the pra- it's the piranha problem that we always talk about, John. Yeah, Tom, have we yeah. talked about this with you before no. on the, the screenwriter no. on Piranha, Joe Dante's Piranha, who he had to fire? John, you know it better. I'm going to get it wrong, and let, so you take me through. Uh, the original he he describes the original screenwriter as uh, trying having the problem of how to get the kids into the lake to get eaten by the piranha. So what he decides is, okay, well, uh, they'll be chased by a bear. The bear will chase them into the lake, and that's how they'll end up there. But, like, why would the bear chase them? Um, so how about there's, there's, like, forest fire, and, like, the bear gets, like, forced out of the trees, and that's why he's chasing the kids, and that's how they end up in the lake. And he said uh, they were just... They but were but how did the forest fire start? It's like, it's <laughs> it's like, how about the kids are just in the lake? Because kids go in lakes kind of problem. It's that... I, As a screenwriter, you must appreciate ending up heading down an entirely wrong oh yeah no I, I teach it as beware <laughs> the what if tree oh what tell me about that what do you mean well the the what if tree is like well what if this happens it sends you off on a branch yeah now you've got a new branch and then another question well what if this happens yeah another branch and then another question of what if this happens and so because you don't know where you're going and because you're being indecisive and you're not keeping it simple suddenly now you've got a huge forest fire and a rampaging bear which which is (laughs) you know more threatening to the kids and the piranha so like i don't know is the movie called bear or piranha you know like like, but this is result of like they're kids. They're having a swim. They go into the light. Like you don't have to make it more complicated than that. Um, the uh, the other um, two uh, O'Bannon shoe stitch script that we should mention is they wrote Total Recall. They wrote the Schwarzenegger sure. Total Recall, which is an excellent, excellent script. And yeah. then Schuster, um by himself with the director and Stephen Pressfield wrote Above the Law. The um, Steven Seagal movie that oh, sort of kicks off as yeah, I didn't. I mean, I should have known that. I've seen Above the Law a dozen times by now, uh, yeah, if not more. And he uh, he actually wrote one of um, Andrew Davis's early horror movies as well. This movie called The Final Tear. But oh yeah, that's uh, now on Shutter, and I keep kind of like I'd like to watch Andrew Davis's first <laughs> horror film. Uh, but what's what's odd though is Dan O'Bannon apparently disowned Dead and Buried. Uh, you know you, what the you know what the full story is if we're going to get into it now. Yeah, are we going to get into it? Yeah, I want to know the full story because it doesn't get... sound like the surface level does not sound quite right. I was go- I was going to save it until we kind of talked about the movie a little bit, but yeah, what Dan O'Bannon says. Well, uh, let's real you... quick, real quick, let's take through the plot of the movie and then explain what happened. And just a, a small recap of this movie: the the briefest quick, you know, sort of thumbnail plot is you have a creepy small town where people are getting killed in groups by are killed by themselves by groups of the townspeople sort of descend upon them and randomly murder them. They're outside. It opens with a photographer uh, being approached by a beautiful young woman from the town uh, from uh, Potter. What is it? (laughs) What's the town called? Potter's Potter's Bluff. Because I watched it. I watched it the day after I watched In the Mouth of Madness, so I keep trying to call it Hobbs End Hobbs when End. I think about this town. Yeah, but, I can see that. Potter's, coastal, they're, Potter's Bluff, a, post, a small coastal town no bigger than a postage stamp. Yes, and so the the townsfolks of 
Potter's Bluff descend on these outsiders, a photographer, a homeless drunk, a young lady hitchhiker, and kill them. But after we see them killed in the movie, they start reappearing, seemingly absorbed into the network of the town as a gas station attendant or things of that nature. And it's about a detective, a not a detective, a, a local sheriff unraveling the mystery of what's going on, of why these people are being murdered and why they suddenly are reappearing in the town after being horribly murdered. The film leaves no no uh, confusion as to the level and violence inflicted upon them about about uh, uh, about whether they're dead or not, except in a great opening scare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, early work from the great Stan Winston. Yes, yes. Who's, you know, if you don't know who Stan Winston is, why are you listening to a movie podcast? <laughs> that seems like it seems like you got went down the wrong rabbit hole. Um, yes. But so that's that's sort of the the quick thumbnail of the plot. Now, John, what what's the background story? What happened? Why was everybody angry with this film at the end of the day? I don't know about everybody. <laughs> uh, I can speak to Dan O'Bannon, who, you know, again, is the credited co-writer with Ron Shusett, the alien team, back back together again to do this movie. Uh, he says he contributed nothing to the film, that nothing in the film is his, that what happened was Ron Shusett, this is the weirdest thing, came to him and said, they're not going to make this movie without your name on it. Like, I want to put your name on the screenplay alongside mine. And Dan O'Bannon read the script, thought it was bad. And said, okay, well, I've got a bunch of, you know, suggestions. If you take these suggestions, if you make these changes, then yes, then go ahead and put my name on it. Give me the 10,000 bucks or whatever. And it's fine. And he said he went and saw the movie and he had changed nothing. It was the same script that he had shown him uh, the first day. So he said, you know, I couldn't, uh, it was too late to take my name off of it, but I can gripe about it in interviews at least. And apparently Shusett had given him the same, had made them the same proposition for phobia, when that was a yeah. <laughs> you've just been trying to get the O'Bannon Shusett team together. They get the team to together, be the, yeah. the Lennon and McCarthy of uh, horror <laughs> movies or something. But instead, so, instead right, he got yeah. Gary Sherman, Sherman and and Shusett. It's more of a tongue twister. <laughs> it's more of a folk duo. It sounds like. <laughs> um. Well, I can say to get in the background a little bit about this movie uh, that it is. Um, Gary Sherman was very unhappy with it. And when you see the movie, one of its most notable aspects is that the violence is truly brutal violence. Yeah. And that it is some of the more disturbing imagery you will see in a horror movie. And um, all of that was added in reshoots by the producers. Uh, Gary Sherman had initially shot it to be in muted grays without even featuring the color of blood in it whatsoever. And he wanted it to be a moody psychological thriller with no amount of um, of graphic violence. And they essentially forced him. They were like, too bad. You're going to show charred corpses and smashed in heads and stuff. And it's impossible for me to imagine what this movie was without those shock scares those visceral gore shock scares because they're the the most striking part of the movie to me it's and it's very hard for me to imagine just what this thing was without that you know it, it feels like one of those there's a kind of british horror movie again what maybe why i think it was being british that's just like 
uh, a detective like wandering across windslept plains to like tight-lipped locals who don't tell him anything that's an entire genre of like british <laughs> in thriller a, in a gray coastal town yeah. exactly yeah. with pea coats people yeah. wearing pea coat yeah and and nothing <laughs> happens in those movies there's there's an 80 uh-huh. yard little kid who says you would some ice cream <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um it is funny it's almost like learning that Jacques Tourneau had nothing to do with the finale of Curse of the Night of the Demon you yeah know, where you see the demon that he was you know fervently against showing the demon at all and so they you just went ahead and shot it without him it's like but that part is so famous yeah I can't imagine the yeah without it. I I yeah it's it's a good question because I I my instinct is Sherman was probably right you know, like this movie would have been more interesting as more of a sixth sense type movie. And, and, you know, rather than, um, do you think so? Do you think 11 year old, you would have thought that? No, good God. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And that's, that's a good question. Like would 11 year old me have remembered the movie 10 years later, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, point. so, uh, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my affection for it certainly doesn't change, but uh, I do wonder like what that version looks like. But at the same time, I never felt like that blood and gore was like, oh, well, that doesn't fit Sherman. You yeah. know, I just I yeah. after after Deathline, which is not shy about the gore at all, at all. Like I was surprised yeah. by how gory it was uh, and how uh, unflinching Vice Squad is. Mm-hmm. there's nothing there's there's nothing in in uh dead and buried that i thought oh that's gratuitous particularly when the whole point was that these bodies are mutilated like that yeah. like that was and there is some logical sense that you know that that i don't think quite adds up but um the motivation of all these dead bodies was to mutilate them in a way yeah i mean especially uh, because so it it's, made sense it feels like such a a, a a philosophical cousin to eyes without a face to me which is so graphic in its surgery scenes you know it feels like it has something like that's the idea for the the visceralness of it because it's dealing with viscera you know it feels strange to me to not to not have that been a part of it it just feels like built into it like you're saying that like the the viscera of the film is what it's about it's about decaying dead deformed broken bodies being reassembled you know that and the most interesting shot the the most remarkable one is that one where he's putting the woman's face back together the mortician and drops the eyeball into the socket and then she sits up and is alive again yeah uh just for one thing for all listeners spoilers we discuss movies always on this podcast beginning to end we talk about all aspects of them so if you're interested in dead and buried or vice squad go go watch them because we'll talk about them come back yeah um we've we've surely tantalized you enough with our descriptions and and sherman is great with those kind of old old school practical hollywood tricks yeah he's got a couple of those shots of like you don't notice it the first time, but you're watching it again and you go, oh, 
oh, they off camera, they moved and they moved the body. Then she came on. And then like when yeah. they came down, it looked the same. And like, there's just, I love that old school stuff. Whereas now they just do like a C, oh, we'll just put it on blue. Yeah. Screen. <laughs> no, there's a great one of those in Vice Squad where he yeah. pistol whips the guy and throws him over the ledge. Exactly. And they the give him just yeah, they give yeah. him just enough time to move the crash pad and put <laughs> the guy in there in the puddle of blood. And you're like, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Cause it looks like how they it looks like they threw him off there. Your brain, when you watch that kind of practical effects, it really does the yeah. synapses in your brain connect in a way that's really strong. Um, my I'm question surprised, yeah. Chris, real quick, this I before we get off topic, I, I this is the first I'm hearing that Sherman did not have anything to do with those scenes. And I also am, am shocked and can't imagine them without them. He, so it's like, not that he had nothing to do with them. They were forced on him. Okay, he he had the producers them. like, you got to put Gore in this movie. Right, right, right. Oh, right. Did, was he at least involved in, in uh, the reshoot? I, it's God. Now, let me let me check and see <laughs> about that. What's the research say? Yeah, I'm like, well, <laughs> let me let me double check. Because like uh, the only one that really bugged me is when they stick the acid up the the doctor's yeah. nose, it's and the only so and what bugged me about upsetting. it's so, so upsetting. Good. But like I just don't feel like he fought enough, you know? Like yeah, I feel he like shot he, just, he he shot it. He shot yeah. it. He they, just it's I, after I, principal photography. Yeah, um, he was completed. He was then forced to go and add gore. And the uh, the same producer apparently said to him, "If I wanted Bergman to make a horror film for me, I would have hired Bergman. Now go make it into a horror movie." <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, certainly that was like Gene Siskel's big problem. His negative review of the movie was it's just another gore fest. You know, a lot of violence, but. As someone who's seen tons of horror movies, as all three, I'm sure all three of us have seen tons of horror movies, like it's it's rare that I get upset by the violence in a horror movie. And this one with its bur burning alive and someone getting their their head crushed with a rock. The eye, the needle in the eyeball. Yeah, it's very and, and upsetting. The, and the friend you shot, you mentioned, you know, where the, he's reconstructing her face. And you think it's just, you know, well, it probably is just the actress, but then they do the effect with shoving the eye in. It's... Ugh, it's just it's hard to watch it's really really gross in a way that i think a lot of films aren't it's visceral it's genuinely visceral which is a, a quality that seems like it would be easy to conjure in movies and is actually quite hard to to conjure that that sort of feeling of like i'm i'm feeling this in my own body you know what I mean? What I'm seeing on screen, I'm feeling. It reminds me of Argento talking about he always liked to, instead of using like knives or guns in his movies, to have people like cut with a razor blade or on a piece of wire or glass because everybody's cut their hand on a razor or a piece of glass. So you know what it feels like. So you feel the pain when you see the movie in a way that like, what's it like getting hit with a with a hammer? You know, like in your head, who the hell knows how it feels? Everybody knows what it feels like to get your hand cut with a with a piece of glass, giving you that visceral feeling. This movie has that same visceral feeling, even without knowing what it's like to be set on fire. Although I guess you've all we've all burned ourselves a little. We've all been pricked with a needle, you know, so the things it's doing are, are that we've all been hit with a rock in our life. I, I guess yeah. it is sort of in that same vein of the Argento. I thought I was Jack undermining Albertson. myself, and then I brought it around. Turned out I might point Jack Albertson shove an eye into our socket. <laughs> but Tom, since we've now that we've uh, kind of said that Dan O'Bannon had nothing to do with this, and that uh, Gary Sherman was artistically compromised, let me ask what's you, left? <laughs> let me just ask you, like James Farantino. 
<laughs> refuse to acknowledge this movie. It was when I was watching it this time, because it, it like keeps cutting back to Farentino away from like the bad stuff. Like he's always like looking the other way. Like he's like he's like a ref in a wrestling match. Like the the nonsense is always he's always just like knocked out or looking the wrong direction. Um, as I was watching, I was like, Farentino seems like the kind of guy who, as a real dude, like, he, there's no way he liked movies like this. You can look at him and be like, he's not going to see his own movie. There's no fucking way. I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing. <laughs> I was like, he does not. Does he like being in this movie? Because he's not going to. This is Yeah. He's like my dad. Just be like, I'm not watching that trash, you know, kind of thing, kind of yeah. attitude. And I and I, and how old is he when he made this? What was he like? 45 or something like this Uh, that seems about right yeah yeah. so like if you if you were to make this now in a 45 year old actor you would just absolutely assume that they love this shit yeah but like a 45 year old actor in 1980 you're like yeah he's he's he feels like he's slumming it yeah he's slumming it he feels like it's over the glory days of (laughs) night gallery are gone (laughs) i gotta get that mortgage paid kids kids got (laughs) sophomore year of college i gotta you know, I gotta get this stuff done. Meanwhile, uh, something uh, Robert England is all for it. He's oh like, yeah, <laughs> another uh, Hoover, another Toby Hooper connection. Oh yeah, because of uh because of Eaten Alive. He's he's sort of the guy who broke England in a lot oh, of ways. My. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and uh, my old buddy Chris Corbin's dad, Barry Corbin, uh, is, is in this. I was was really nice to see uh, when I rewatched it. I was like, Barry Corbin's in this. I am not familiar. Who is Barry Corbin? I'm not familiar with them. Uh, he is a uh, a wonderful uh, character actor, probably most famous for Northern Exposure. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And uh, his wife was just nominated for an Emmy for Jury Duty as the older lady in Jury Duty. So oh, they're an old, like they're an old Hollywood, you know, acting family. And oh, I, I just yeah, I just pulled him up. Of course, yes. yeah. And I'm Easy. I'm friendly. I'm friendly with Chris Corbin. We're not you know drinking buddies or anything, but we're friendly from uh, the improv community. Uh, okay. In in, in L.A. Uh, and he's a another uh, you know talented character actor. So like it's just one generation after another of just like great <laughs> character actors. That's amazing. Uh, and and I just love these guys like Robert England is one, even though Robert England's a little because he's just so famous at this point. But uh, but these these actors that have just been around for 40, 50 years doing parts, you know, just yeah. like never, never becoming stars and they don't need to. They're just working actors doing their job and have met have, are just so good at it. They just last they just keep working and like to see barry corbin like working in 1980 um you know it's just it's just inspirational and it's also it's interesting because the kind of stars melody anderson and farentino are are also sort of almost like character actor stars like they like they're not real movie stars they're not real tv stars they're sort of like character actors whose character is the lead in a movie so that's yeah. what you can cast them in <laughs> yeah. over and over again and, and farentino worry he's like uh he's in another film with that i i really love the final countdown um oh yeah yeah uh like he'd been working and been around for for quite a while and but melody anderson's a good example of someone who's very good 
but had a short career. You know, I just had like a short career and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's not like she wasn't good enough. She wasn't interesting enough or compelling enough. I always love to see her when she pops up on screen and, you know, she had a short TV career, short, um, yeah, film career, and and for our generation it was like a classic, you know, a couple of classic movies of Dead and Buried and Flash Gordon, and yeah, I find her absolutely magnetic in this movie. I find oh her magnetic. Which yeah. which movie is that, John? I don't want to. I don't want to give it away. But she'll be in a movie we're going to be talking about on an episode coming up sometime soon. Oh, very exciting. It's not. I agree. I, She's so creepy. It's not because I was going to say it's not. Farentino's in your favorite Bruce Beresford movie of all time. <laughs> I'm sure he is. His I'm role in her sure. alibi, her alibi, her alibi. Yeah. Uh, but I love Melody Anderson in this movie. I love the introduction of her characters. One of yeah. the kind of screenplay things I noticed was that the first thing we like our introduction to Janet Gillis, the wife of the sheriff, is that the hotel manager says, "Ask your wife about yeah. the stranger." You know, We've never even, yeah, no idea. Like, he has a wife. Who's was that? Yeah. Uh, and normally that would that would be considered kind of a a mistake of like, why are we just hearing about her now, thirty two minutes into the film? Um, but well, let, let me ask you this, because this is something John and I talked about. Do do you think this is a good script? Watching it this time, I felt like this is kind of a bad script that Sherman yeah. directed the hell out of. Yeah, I agree. It's not a it's not a good script. There there there's elements in there and themes and um and not a, not themes. Uh, I guess themes. There's themes. Yeah, the yeah, idea of how themes. well how well themes do we know our partner? Yeah, you know how well do you know the person you love? How well do you know yeah. the person opposite you in the marriage? You know? uh, but those, and for me, those moments add up enough that I have an emotional experience through this. That I have a I have a reaction to it. Um, just the opening scene is is horrifying, and it and. It is. I think you're absolutely right, because you don't know how much of this is present in the script. Like you could hope to have it present in the script. Um, but the point is, is that Sherman and the actors had it in there. But like just for example, at the opening scene of this photographer who's just taking these stupid pictures and and um, and there's nothing interesting about these pictures. He's, yeah. he's being artsy or something. I don't know. He's, uh, um, he reminds me of like, there's so many serial killers who would just like go hang around at the beach and hope women would be like, you're a photographer. Yeah. There's like a, but he has that vibe to him. And the first time I watched it, I was like, well, we, we, here's the creep. Here's yeah. the, and I think it, I think it's trying to subvert that a little bit. Oh, you know? oh Yeah. Because you have that smug little, that's an expensive camera. And he's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like smug. And then seeing him so cocky. Yeah. And so arrogant. Yeah. And when and... she takes her clothes off, his reaction is like, yep, of course, this is yeah, where that's right going. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. happens to me. Look at time. me. It's that's when you uh, wander around the beach with an expensive camera, just the and, tops fly off of them. Yeah. And 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 just the quick reversal of him being uh, helpless and weak and or literally taking the camera away from him. Like, taking yeah. Away from yeah. And taking out. pictures of him. And and it's. uh 
you know, so what a crowbar to his knee. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's just so fragile and so human. And that that quick trip of going from arrogance to they're bashing your knee in and then they're putting you on a post to light you on fire. Now, like this stuff could have been present in the script. I've, I have no idea, but it's in the movie and you have this uh, emotional reaction that's so disturbing and so scary because just the idea of being alone and all of a sudden 10 people are have just decided you're dead. They're going to kill you. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You're just, you're just helpless. So. And, uh, and it being a mob, there's not even anyone yeah. to in, in to entreat to don't be cruel here, at least. No. You know, like there's no one to sort of appeal to for mercy in a group like that. And and we know we know how mobs work. We know how groupthink works. And and that if you've got someone next to you saying, "Hey, it's totally cool. You're going to do this," uh, like you're more likely to do it. And that's just the way people are. And now we learned later on these people are not necessarily human beings making conscious choices. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> <the> people, time, <laughs> but at the time. Um, I just think that that rapid movement and those moments of just like you said, like the moment, like when he she takes off the blouse, like the actors don't have to try here. Like in Vice Squad's the same. We'll talk. We'll talk about Vice Squad, but just like Sherman gets such good performances out of that. Mm-hmm. That I was, yeah, and there's just from moment to moment to moment, uh, and each moment leading to the next and reacting into the moment. Um, it's a very meta thing too that he says. You look like a Lisa to me, and it's Lisa Blunt. <laughs> it's Lisa Blunt character, late great Lisa Blunt. Yeah. Um. So I I don't think it's a well structured script. Um. You, you normally should know Jack Albertson is the bad guy because he's such he's the most interesting <laughs> character. Well, that's but that's what's script. crazy is is the two things that are so obvious that end up being the twist feel so obvious that you assume they're red herrings, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, they're so obvious that it's like, well, these are obviously red herrings because they're so obvious. Yeah. And then when they're the twists, you're like, did, did expect me to believe to fall for that? Like, do, do they think anyone in the audience did not suspect either of these people? You know, it almost reminds me of, um, this book, uh, The Red Right Hand. Have you read this book? I have it's not. From, it's, it's like a detective thriller from the height of the whodunit era. And it's a an avalanche of red herrings to a point where you can't even understand what happened in this story because it's just so intent on psyching you out that when you get to the bottom of it, it's like, wait, is just the most obvious thing you thought it was what it is? It kind of reminded me of that same problem of yeah. like, of, 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 of not even hiding the twists in plain sight. It doesn't even, I, I feel like I don't know if it wants me to be surprised or not. Yeah. You know? it's, a, it's a good point. And they don't even gaslight you of like, of course, that's not the twist. You know, like they yeah. don't even do that part where you go, well, clearly it's her. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I'm an asshole for thinking it was her. Yeah. Because, like even that one time she's like, oh, that's from camera equipment. The very next scene we learned. Yeah. It's 
like yeah. the very next scene. What's this book on voodoo and the sacrificial knife for? For school. And you're like, well, this kid, the to, she can't be doing it if she's yeah. just like, I have the voodoo book and the knife for school. Yeah. There's got to be some other move. But yeah. then we see that <laughs> like she then. is giving that lecture. <laughs> but then by the time the end of the lecture, you're like, oh, she's so guilty. Yeah. So, like, it's like they, for like a moment, they let us off the hook. Well, what's the curriculum yeah. at this school? Why didn't I get to have a class on witchcraft? <laughs> is what I want to know. Why didn't I get to have a teacher teacher like Melody Anderson? Um, Also, just the introduction of the mortician, the way he shows up is so overtly like, here's the villain. You know, here's the the weirdo who's behind it all. You know, there's no other way you can react to him. It's I well, it's like, here's the weirdo character actor who's going to be in this one scene, you know, in like scene steal. But when he's consistently there, it's like, well, he's obviously the villain because why are they giving this lunatic so much yeah. screen time this overtly bizarre person you know and they, they give him one scene where he's able to deny it and go that's crazy like <laughs> yeah. i was offended your wife would mention that uh but uh, but other than that yeah it's like well and also there's no other suspects like who else yeah like there are no there is nobody else yeah well because we know it's everybody in town so yeah. there's no other suspects because it's established town is a generic blob with three people differentiated in it, you know, yeah. with with uh, sheriff, yeah. wife, mortician. Everybody else is just the blob of evil. That's the town. Yeah. So you don't suspect anybody else because you've been told they're the villains. You know, you can't yeah. be like, maybe it's that guy. Well, yes, he was in the mob killing somebody. So it is that guy. But beyond that, what is it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You've you've convinced me. I'm disowning this movie, too. No, I, <laughs> I'm that's disowning the thing. it. Add me to the list. That's that's Add the me thing. To the list. Is that I think it's I, I think it's a really good movie i think it's a very effective movie and i think we're trying to figure out why yeah (laughs) and 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 i think it's interesting to talk to a screenwriter about the script of it i think that's also what's interesting because for you you would think like tom vaughn screenwriter is only going to like a movie with a good script you know that that's going to appeal to him sorry but john do you want to jump in i didn't i I didn't say i think tom vaughn screenwriter was on to something where he said you know the emotional response to it is definitely a very palpable thing because and for the same reasons that i think that i like red right hand even though it's this avalanche of you know obviousness i think the obviousness of the villainy of this this town and these people really makes Sheriff Dan Gillis like that much more isolated. I mean, this is obviously like a body of the subgenres, I guess you would call it the body snatcher subgenre, mm-hmm. right? Coming back from Invasion of the Body Snatchers and even its sister film, Halloween 3, which it is very, very similar to, where you just feel this increasing amount of isolation. And every single scene he has where it's like, there's something wrong with you, wife. And she's like, I'm expl- I'll explain it in like the most cursory way and barely even bother to like conceal my evil and he's like, okay, I'm going to choose to believe you. And he just wants to like hold on to this normalcy and this this belief that everyone is not like against him. That's a very kind of like interesting journey for that character to have like this just increasing amount of isolation where we as the audience know all these guys are bad and all these guys are against him. But for him to realize it until at the end, like the ultimate, you know, sting is like, and I'm one of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because I think that is like it. It isn't. It isn't the mystery so much of who's doing it. It's the mystery of what is the mystery of like what is happening. What yeah. is 
why are these people popping up? Why are they doing this? What is their motivation? What mm -hmm. is it like? Why? Like, like yeah. you know, it's, it's much more of a why done it, you know, of like, well, why is this happening more so than who is it happening? Um, and, and we do, you know, with the wife and because we, we don't get any backstory, we don't know how long they've been together. Like he says at the end, I gave you to Janet and, and or like I gave Janet to you. And then you're trying to like, like, are his memories fake? And um, like, like there's something, but like just going back to her when she gets shot and she goes, Dan, I'm dead. Dan, I'm dead. Like it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's painful. Bury me. Yeah. And, and then she goes to that grave and starts burying herself. You know, we talk a lot about it with the classes, uh, you know, of just great scenes and sequences, great mm -hmm. scenes and sequences. And there are so many great scenes in here um, that are are tough to watch, but still compelling to watch. And it's in that scene, too, that we kind of realize it's not about our reaction to it, but it's his reaction to it, because as soon as every single member of the town comes up to pay respect at the grave and he says their name as each one's coming up and even freddie who he doesn't know he says yeah freddie you know they make him say like every single person's name like i'm just now realizing you and you and you are all part of it you know it's it's an interesting kind of moment because i kind of thought like why does he have to name every single person as they come up but i think it's kind of effective for that reason yeah it is i i didn't even notice it until you mentioned it i just was so like watching him deteriorate yeah you know, of uh but like that's part of it of like freddie <laughs> lisa you know like everybody because they do they reveal very very quickly one of the murderers at the cafe so it's like a normal conversation normal conversation and then she comes in with the coffee and so immediately you are given this sense of something is like something is afoot in in the normalcy of the town like this is a normal normal person who is a waitress they're not a psycho they're not a cult they're not so like from a build-up sense there's no there's no real discernible structure to this to this piece um that that i can see uh but yet it is just Great scene, great scene, great scene, but also some clunkers. Like I really thought the the drunk. Uh, yeah, that's a clunker scene. Like that's a, yeah, yeah. Like it's a clunker scene, and there you have no reaction to that. Like when he's killed, like you don't care. And in relationship to um, the Fred character, which is like. Like yeah. one of my memories of horrible films and horror, well, not horrible films, but horrible moments. And it yeah. sticks with me. And, and then the drunk and then hands coming out of the wall and like, yeah. that, that's all. So, uh, you know, it's not all gold. Like it doesn't, it doesn't quite work on every level. Well, but. I, I wanted to ask you, if because I watched this movie and there were three things that jumped out to me as like these are are things that I think make uh, a script that make a horror script not work, but this film succeeds in spite of them. And I was and I was curious what you thought of it. Um, 
and just sort of wanted to sort of uh, get your reaction to a few of them. The first one is that um, this, I in general don't like horror movies uh, that are also detective or law enforcement films, right? Mm -hmm. Where a detective is the main character. I think that the appeal to authority is something that has to fail early on in a horror script for to make the audience feel unmoored in some way that the help isn't coming. This movie has a scene late in it where he's like sending the samples off and calling the boys in the big city bureau and stuff. And you feel like, well, it's all going to be okay because like he has the full weight of the American legal system behind it. Like you can't get this guy, but that leads to an interesting twist in some ways. Like, well, you can get this. There's exactly one way you can get this guy. But to me, it always feels like in a, in a horror movie, um, that features a police officer as the main character, it's hard to build tension because he's in charge and he's always, you know, he's always got the cavalry behind them. You know, that's something that makes Assault on Precinct 13 effective is it's the police officers, but you cut them off very explicitly yeah. from the rest of the world. You cut them off and say, nobody's coming to help you. That's the entire idea behind it is that there's no cavalry, right? Turning or them even, in. Uh, or even to keep, to keep with Gary Sherman Deathline with the Donald Pleasance character. Yeah. Yeah. So jaded, you know, and uh, even gets told off, gets, you know, put off the case by when Christopher Lee from MI5 comes in and tells him, like, you're off this case, like we're taking over. And the characters really have to literally go down into the tunnels and save save the damsel in distress himself because the cops are not going to help you. It's yeah. like a, the polar opposite of this kind of thing. Do you do you think that 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 appeal to authority, do you think I'm analyzing that right? Or do you think there's just too many counter examples? Uh, well, I, I think it depends on how you execute it, honestly. Yeah. I, I feel like there's great strength in making that appeal to authority helpless. Yeah. Like that's what makes it scary is like the person who's supposed to be able to handle this cannot handle it. Yeah. It's bigger than them. Um, so, you know, like I just like one of my favorite, I guess it's a police, but I always think of it as a horror film is seven, you know? Yeah. Of just like they can't handle it, and and Morgan Freeman spending the entire movie going, you can't handle this, like yeah. this is you can't handle, it. and of course he cannot handle it, like that's <laughs> that's what I, like that's I'm telling you from the beginning it's going to be an unhappy ending, you can't deal, yeah. with it. and at the end it's an unhappy ending and he couldn't deal with it, so like I think, um, uh, you know this movie I think works because of the mystery of him trying to like i don't know what's happening i've got to figure this out all the tension happens usually when he's not there yeah there there isn't that time of like you have this one scene where he pulls out the gun and he chases after the person with one arm and it goes nowhere like he just like he i think his he draws a deep breath and oh and then he's done yeah. Like that's the end of the scene. Oh, that guy's. Oh, he got away. That one arm guy whose arm was stuck to my car and still alive. Yeah. That um, guy's that guy's gone. And there's so many they, places to go in this small coastal town. But when Surely they attack, there's no way to find him. When they attack the family, there's no law enforcement there. Like there's yeah. no like there's no one there to help. Um so I, I think it depends on how you you execute it. But mm-hmm. there's certainly a chance of like if you bring somebody in, like 
it's very effective. We do it a lot in the movies of like having someone to come in who they're there to kick ass and then yeah. they get killed quickly. Yeah. And then you realize like the person who's supposed to be able to handle this just got murdered. Yeah. It's the, it, it's it, the shining ending, you know, yeah. the, I'm going to teach you how to use your psychic powers. I'm here to save you. Oh, I'm dead. Instead. Oh, I'm dead. You know? Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, oh, I think that's always really, really powerful in that way. And I think that that ends up being, you know, it's the, it's the nightmare on Elm street, you know, the, like your parents can't help you because they don't believe you. They're the one locking you in your room. There's nobody to go to. Yeah, there's, there's nowhere no to go. To turn to. The authority structure is in some ways inflicting this on you. So it's difficult to make a cop. Yeah. And I think and a it, lot of his scenes that like what you're saying are completely deadly. That's another thing this movie does a ton that to me is always an earmark of a bad script is expository phone calls. Like exposition's bad enough. It's yeah. horrible when you have a dude get on a phone and you have a one-sided phone call giving exposition. To me, that's like the single worst thing you can do in a script. And you know, and you have to think about like, how do you make that interesting? Well, you do it like the duel and have it become like when he's trying to get on the phone to give exposition, the truck tries to run him over. You know, yeah. like that's what you have to do with your phone scene. It can't be this movie. I, I swear there's a dozen scenes that somebody getting on the horn and going, do you have the files? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I'll be right over. She'll yeah. be there too, you know, and it's deadly. It It, it is. And I, but I, I think the same reason why I don't mind it in this one, um, one, for some reason, I'm much more forgiving of older films that do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they haven't they haven't killed their audience with it yet. Um, but uh, the stakes here, obviously, there's death of stakes, you know, like stakes. Yeah. People are dying. People are coming back. But ultimately, the subjective stakes in this thing is very clearly his wife. Yeah, you know, it is a very personal like is my wife involved in this um and if there's any drawback and there's a lot of drawbacks but one <laughs> of the drawbacks to this script is that we never really see them as a happy couple we don't really know what their relationship is she always seems a little off so it it is um uh it's also the shining complaint Right. That he's too crazy to, to from the get go that we don't yeah. see. Like, yeah, that could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like we never really get a sense of why, like, why are they married? Do they really love each other? What's the thing? We're just really supplanting the idea that that's his wife. And yeah. we know what that relationship is supposed to be. And it's certainly when you marry someone, there's an agreement that they're not a psycho killer. Yeah. And so like like so that's the constant threat. And um uh, I think it also works because she's so charming that you go, why are they married? And you go, because she's Melody Anderson. What are you, Anderson, what are you talking I, about? I, you I know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and everything, even when she's off, you're like that she's charming. And I think that that's what you're saying too, where he guides the actors through the beats very carefully. He never hangs out anybody to dry. And I think that's particularly remarkable in a script like this that hangs everybody out to dry at all times, yeah. this script. That, they that seem to be doing all the work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Ferretino's very good at this. Like, he's yeah. very good in this. And and he didn't phone this in. Like, yeah. he, he was putting in the work. Um, yeah. And even Albertson seemed like he was having fun. Yeah. And he had some clunky dialogue. He had, like, like 
you, you have to have some, you know, yeah, some, the, some old time experience. Too. He has the best line that should be on the poster of the movie. You can't kill me, Dan. You can only make me dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to jump into just yeah. to add on to what Tom was saying about, you know, the characters feeling powerless, you know, and mm-hmm. not, not being, you know, able to do what they need to do. For me, that's the through line of the movie is like being like sinking further into the mire where it's not even about powerlessness. It's about like purposelessness, you know, um, where he, he realizes that like this is a role that he's been literally put into, that everybody in this town has this role that they've been placed into by uh, Jack Albertson, like they, like he's the puppet master. Uh, I think like a big theme is, you know, you come to a small town and you get stuck there. You become the gas station, you know, attended <laughs> a small town. Like yeah. you can't just like move through it. Like everything about this town is unpleasant. The idea of living here is pretty unpleasant. Uh, and then to kind it of really realize, is an awful town. Yeah. Gray <laughs> and disgusting. And realizing like, oh, am I the sheriff in this town? Like, <laughs> is this my beautiful wife? This is not my beautiful wife, you know. Uh, I have a master's degree. What am I doing here? (laughs) Chris mentioned in the mouth of madness. And it's that same kind of feeling of like a character who feels confident in their role and feels like they know they they control their destiny. They know what they're doing. Finding out that like, it's all a bit of fiction, you know, that that this reality is something completely different. That's the horror of the movie for me. I think that's the most effective thing. For sure. I I agree. When he says, Oh, I found her in a ditch. Yeah. yeah, like horrifying. Like, how long has she been dead? How long is she like? Yeah, oh. yeah. And then I oh. gave her to you. Yeah, I gave her to you is oh, such a gross line. <laughs> but the um, but the last thing, which is really, I don't know what my relationship is. This this is all making me sound negative about a movie that I like, but I think it's worth talking with you about the mechanics of all of this because you are a screenwriter, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. So I'm not. It's making it sound like I'm really down on this film that yeah. I that I enjoyed quite a bit and that I'm in, impressed by in a lot of ways. This is a movie that I'm definitely impressed by in a lot of ways. But the final thing is when we find out that, spoiler, big twist, he himself has been reanimated and is another corpse and it ends on a freeze frame of like his hands coming apart. This is a moment where I watch that and you have to, just feel it. You have to absorb it emotionally and take it on an emotional way. Because if you think about it at all, it makes no sense. The rules of the world are never established in any way. And why does everybody else know they're dead and help committing murders, but he doesn't know that he's dead? Does the mortician sit them down and say, so I brought you back to life. I'm going to need you to be a murder zombie, right? And work on my behalf. Like, how does, are he being controlled by the voodoo? Is the part of the voodoo to control him so he doesn't know? Why is he the only one who isn't in on it? He what are they? how he does it. And he literally has a line that's like, just call it magic. Just He's like magic, magic advancement of silence. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a moment where you go like, what are the rules? And I do think with horror movies, it's very hard to make them work when the rules are as incoherent as this film you know like yeah. we, we know he's been it since his wife stabbed him in bed but like was that a week ago was that two days ago when is that scene in bed taking place you know are they using freddie's stolen camera equipment from the it's just one of those things where we're at the end it it's very impactful 
you know, mm-hmm. the ending of the movie, it plays perfectly, which is a yeah. testament to the directing and performance, right? Um, but like as coherency wise, it's completely incoherent. You know, what do you, you know? You have to go back are you, to the pra- episode of the Twilight Zone with the mannequins. Yeah. The one who's just forgotten that she's a mannequin at the end. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot where I'm a living mannequin like you guys. Yeah. But I was going to say to you, do you feel as a screen editor like that's, like good good for my boy for getting away with it as a screenwriter you want to be able to get away with that stuff or do you feel like he's he's lucky he dodged a bullet like how what what do you feel when you encounter something yeah well there's there's it's funny because it's it's one of the things that bugged me was that he kept calling her his his masterpiece yeah which which i'm fine with because yeah that seems like a masterpiece yeah but it was also his first one, which didn't make any sense. Yeah. Like your first one was a masterpiece. Well, it's, you know, Citizen Kane. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good point. And, and, and Farentino's Mr. Arkadin, obviously, in this scenario. Uh, so that's like, you didn't get any better at it after, after her. That was the one. But yeah, you're right. Citizen Kane. He should have said that. That's my citizen. <laughs> I should have quit while I was ahead. I should, I should retired but, then. Because you were my Magnificent Andersons. The producers got in there and fucked it all up. You don't even <laughs> want to know. Now that we're zombies by committee with the whole town, uh, uh, the, work, the work we do now, it's a headache. Uh, I, it's it's I, become I, a job I, to me. No, sorry. Go ahead. I think there's 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 two levels to it for me. Of is it just what is called a refrigerator problem? Have you have you heard that? No, reference? no. From from my understanding, it's it was it's mostly attributed to Jonathan Demme. Interesting, uh, but I I don't know if that's true. But I've always liked the phrase. Uh, but it, a refrigerator problem is a massive plot hole that you do not notice when you watch the movie because the emotions have got you you know you you're believing what you see and you're having the emotional experience that storytellers want you to have uh but uh that night as you're in the kitchen and you're thinking about this movie and you open the refrigerator door and all of a sudden you go wait a minute yeah that makes no sense at all <laughs> um so not related, so, that's, the, not related to nuke the fridge at all. That's yeah. that's that's interesting that that you mentioned that because that ties into the thing where I was going to say the research for this film was like, oh, that explains that. I was friends with Jonathan Demi. He was like sort of a mentor for me at work when I programmed the movie theater and somebody I knew well. And he would always want to show Vice Squad. It was like really? on his list forever. He was like, what are we showing Vice Squad, Chris? Find me a print of Vice Squad. It was really fucking hard to find a print. It's what you're saying. It was in the out-of-print era. Unclear who owned the rights. Unclear where the fuck this film was. And I'd be like, I'm working on it. And I found out he had formed early in his career a production company with Gary Sherman and Michael Mann. I had no idea. Yeah, and Michael Mann quit the production company and left. But early on, like in the like um, raw meat era, uh, they had all formed a production company together to make movies. And he was like friends with Gary Sherman, apparently, which I had never known. I'd always be like, man, why, why is Demi like, I look, I love Vice Squad as much as anybody. It's fucking weird that he's always like time to do Vice Squad, Chris. Cause the other things he'd want to show are like 
Alan Renee's Providence and Ponte yeah. Varsovia by, you know, uh, Pear Portobello and stuff like that would be the things we'd be showing for him. So it always fascinates me how geniuses find each other early and like yeah. you find like, how did they find now? Like them finding each other was that an influential thing that helped them become geniuses because then yeah. that would make more sense yeah otherwise you've just got these two geniuses who just happened to meet of like yeah. oh yeah we were roommates back in college like, yeah. shit, like you hear shit like that like how did that one i had one that blew my mind last year when i found out martin short and gildner radner were boyfriend and girlfriend who lived together whoa but, yeah they had dated, they were a serious, serious couple before Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. SCTV and lived together. And it just blew my mind to find out. And of course, I'm thinking, well, they're both, I guess they're both Canadian. Yeah. They're both from that same school. So that makes sense. Yeah. But, but like, how did I not know that fact? Like yeah. those two comic geniuses just lived together. Like they were a couple. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just so bizarre to me. So like, yeah, Michael Mann, uh, Gary Sherman and Jonathan Demme. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were, yeah. we were drinking buddies and we had a production company together. <laughs> and and, like, and Gary, Gary Sherman hates Michael Mann's guts. I can't I couldn't find any information about it. Wow. But, I, but he has a he has a quote where he calls him the single most evil human being I've ever met. And it's like, I wonder what happened there. Gary yeah. Sherman does seem to be a bit of a. um hyperbolic quote factory he's very he's, yes. he seems like a, a bit flamboyant with that stuff that's good he's got he's got an instagram page you can go follow him on instagram oh, I had no he's idea. There. yeah he's yeah he posted like a week ago something i so, had no idea he's yeah. got to be like what like 75 80 years old at this I, point i think he's like 75 don't make me get don't, don't make me yeah. get that wrong he's 78 he's 78 78 so, yeah oh man i had no idea I had no yeah. idea. I wonder that's the, if he's that's like the best kind of and there's an actually has nothing to lose, you know, doesn't have like an A-list career these days. And it's just like, I'm just going to say whatever I feel. I, I should I, mention, too, that he's probably that I, right, though, you're like he's probably right. Like, don't you kind of get the sense he's probably right? I, I really liked Michael Mann when I met him. He was but he seems incredibly exacting, like yeah. lunatic exacting. I, I should mention that one of the. um that a lot of this information, one of the only good articles uh, I've read on Gary Sherman is uh, Zach Vasquez for Crooked Marquee wrote about him. And it's and it's an interesting article. And I'm sure a lot of the information I'm, I'm pulling from memory is from that article because he hasn't been he hasn't been written about much. So I feel like mentioning a, a source on that to to check it out further and get more information. Yeah. 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 Uh, very cool. So. Oh, yeah. So refrigerator problems. And mm -hmm. then. Also, you can also get away with a huge plot hole that does not emerge until the end that you have such a visceral reaction to. Like you have such a like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, you go off on this ending. And so you're too busy to really think about like, does that make kind of sense or anything? Um, but. Uh, like for me, I just always assumed that even though he never says anything, I just always assumed Farentino that 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 character was a more advanced form. But now that I find like now that I like I'm more aware of the fact that she was his masterpiece and he doesn't say anything to him about it of like, 
Hey Dan, you're my you're my new masterpiece. Yeah. Like whatever the, they yeah. only have the memories I give them. So like maybe they get away with it there. Do Does they, he say they only have the memories I give them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess Angle is kind of introduced as like he controls them like in their minds. So. Yeah, do they know they're murderers or is that like a switch that's turned? It's vague. It's very It's vague. vague. <laughs> like it makes no sense. <laughs> Um, but you also, you have a great more responsibility for that kind of rules. If you know those facts in the beginning, like yeah. if you know that in act one, that this guy, these are zombies and this guy's controlling, then you're going to want to know the rules of like, how does he control them? Does like, the like, does he do this? Does he do that? But if you find out at the very end, oh, he controls them. You, you've got a lot more leeway to not have to explain in my mind, you know, too yeah. much more. Um, but you have to have great confidence to do it because normally notes will not let you get away from it, like for that long, you know, <laughs> like some, <laughs> at some point goes, Hey man, this doesn't make any sense. Can we fix that? Can you? Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll write a line. We'll write a line about uh, dreams. He controls them in dreams. <laughs> like, they had that. Why was he let go by Providence, uh, Rhode Island, the, the hospital where he was working at? Well, he kept reanimating corpses, and that was kind of a problem. Yeah. Oh, I think he's up to it again. I don't think he learned his lesson. <laughs> um. So let's. Um. This is this is a good movie. Do you have? A, I want to move on from it to Vice Squad, so this isn't a full four-hour episode we're doing, but. Uh, but does, did you have anything more you wanted to say about this film? It was nice to revisit this film because this mm -hmm. film is is a movie that I think of as like one of those great curiosities and weird things. You know, it's not a movie that I think of as like straight horror masterpiece. It's one of those films that in some ways I think as a horror fan, if you're like a crate digger who's seen everything, dead and buried is what you're hoping to find yeah. at the bottom of the barrel in some ways. You know what it I was, mean? It was dead and buried at the box office. Well, boy. Uh, I think ultimately for me, because I, I was curious of the same thing of like this movie and having such, you know, uh, uh, disturbing yet affectionate memories of it, of does it hold up? Does mm -hmm. does my does my memory romanticize how good of a film it is? Do I remember it correctly? And uh, in some ways, it, it it has romanticized it as far as like being a good movie, yeah, like a polished movie like that's well structured and well done. Um, but I don't think I've romanticized the fact that it, it is very much a mood piece. It is very much. The mystery itself, as far as who done it, fails. The why they did it doesn't fail as as much, you know, like of like, oh, it's voodoo and this guy is doing it. Like it it doesn't seem that shocking by the time we get there. Um, I think the images of that really crappy 16 millimeter film showing uh on the wall of 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 you know, watching his his wife, it, that's always going to be upsetting of watching a film and your wife is fucking someone and kills them. And then there's a bunch of people taking pictures of it like that's that's not the stuff plot 
really matters about. Like that's a very creepy, unnerving moment of watching a man watch his wife fuck somebody, kill them with a knife while other townspeople start coming out of the woodwork to watch and applaud and she's smiling and she's practically waving going, did I do good? Did I do good? Like those things stick with you and those things can um, really elevate. George C. Scott. Say again? (laughs) Try watching that George C. Scott. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like that's uh, that stuff can elevate weaker plot points because really all you want out of plot, like the only purpose of plot is to evoke emotion. That's the only reason plot is there and plot for its own sake like no one cares about it's just information who gives a shit but if you can create a well-polished plot that evokes emotion and like from the characters and from the audience then you're in great shape here it's not a very good plot or at least not very good machinations of the plot but it still evokes very clear very distinct emotional response from us throughout the whole thing um and so I think that's why it works. And that's why we look at the clunker scene of the of the bum where like it doesn't work, like no one cares. And even though like this family that it doesn't make like they're just making every horror mistake they can going into a house, going upstairs, like all <laughs> like, like, dude, there's no one here. The, the piano is covered with cobwebs. <laughs> there's no one here. You know, go back to I, the I saw the light. She gives an all-timer oh. irritating performance. Oh my god. She, Everyone she, argues in this movie. She, Everyone argues. That character is like, I I detest this character so quickly. He detest his own her yeah. own husband detests him. And like, no, I don't I didn't see a light. Shut up. Oh my <laughs> god, yeah. What? He's no charmer either. No, yeah. But the idea of of you're with your wife and you're with your child and you cannot protect them mm-hmm. because hordes of people are coming after you. Um, like that's like you're everyone's going to respond to that. Like that's and even if you go like I hate this shit, yeah, of course you do. You're supposed to hate it. Like like it yeah. is an uncomfortable thing to watch. That's why some people can't handle horror and some people are you know um ha- like have uh 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 you know i don't like a uh enjoy it and feel yeah. something is exercised through it yeah but i i feel like ultimately the script is an excuse to have these uh these moments that work really well and they're to me they're exactly the kind of movies that should be a remake yeah because it 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 wasn't there's so much to improve on it and yet the core part of it is so good um that i i I think any horror fan should like every horror fan should see this movie yeah did you this just popped in my head have you seen um strange behavior uh michael laughlin's movie from 81 aka dead kids it's been a while it was like about four or five years ago i saw it yeah it's it's very similar in a lot of ways to this film it's sort of like mind control ends in like a facility with the scientist giving a little speech and to me that movie falls entirely flat there's like one or two moments that are okay and i think it's an interesting contrast because they both sort of have like 
equally uh, iffy scripts, you know, but one, when I compare them in my mind, what Dead and Buried has exactly what you're talking about. It has great individual scenes and great individual thoughts for scenes, like whatever's in the script, the thought of the end of the wife's story is her burying herself alive. That's got, that's a script thought. That's an amazing scene. You know, like all it needs to say, you know, exterior, you know, exterior cemetery night. uh, She decides to bury herself. Great. Hand it to them. They'll do something with it. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's, that's what all you need there. It doesn't matter what he wrote beyond that because that's, that's a scene. That's a hell of a fucking scene. Yeah. I wish I came up with it, you know? Yeah. but even like strange behavior, like I, I, it's been a while. Now that I think about it, more than five, maybe ten years since yeah. I saw it. Uh, but the one thing I do remember is, doesn't he kill his dad at the end, or like somebody like has yeah. to kill father figure? Yeah, and there is that really strong. Like that's what I remember is yeah. one strong emotional moment that lingers with me that I remember, and all the plot stuff I remember like like. It, it it is like teaching kids to be better kids or something like that or there's like some government facility mind control yeah you know it's it's one of those that that's a movie that's the classic gets called lynchian because it's incredibly stilted and the performances are like zombified yeah. at times like they've been hypnotized and the and the narrative sort of synapses don't necessarily touch all the way you know so they're yeah. like lynchian you know like <laughs> it's it's suburbia it's weird yes. it doesn't necessarily yeah. have the story that you can follow you yeah know? lynchian's a little more a little yeah. more intentional like yeah this, like this well but it's also like blue velvet is a really compelling plot you know yeah. like a very it's compelling so plot you know, like it, it's his best movies have really yeah. incredible, like straight story has an incredibly strong and emotional through line, you know, like he doesn't, he, he does not necessarily just up his own ass the way he, he can. Well, be, a, but yeah. yeah. But even look at those performances, like, yeah. like those performances in Lynch movies are spectacular. Yeah. If, like, if they're stilted, they're making a choice, you know, yeah. it's not because it's bad acting. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. For sure. Um, let's, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, uh, now before we move into Vice Squad about your class and, and, and teaching and what you do as, as a teacher, right? Are you, are you up for talking about that for a sure. little bit? Yeah, I, I can it just love talk about this oh, stuff. Yeah. As a way to get into it, just, I love that you brought up, you yes, know, sir. that very screenwriting professor, uh, term, the refrigerator uh, moment, <laughs> you know, let me just ask you, Chris, because I was thinking what movie is the most refrigerated moment for me. And it's something you brought up about the movie Looper. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know. I just know my refrigerator problem is no, nobody's blocking the refrigerator. Perry, when he gets that ball in the one yard line, John, that's a real refrigerator problem. No. What is the biggest one? No, to me, the biggest, can I tell you my biggest refrigerator problem? Yeah. You don't remember what it is from Looper though? I don't remember. I don't remember. Johnson movie. It's that. Yeah. The whole concept is that you can't get away with murder in the future. That's why they oh, yeah. people back in time to be killed. And then when they come for Bruce Willis, they murder his wife right there <laughs> in like, front of him. It's like, I thought you couldn't murder anybody. And that was the whole setup. Is that there's no murder in the future. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mine is mine is obviously it's the famous one. It's the end of Back to the Future, where like he goes to the house and his brothers and sisters are yuppies and he's got the truck and his mom and dad are successful. And the the problem when you think about it is there's an entire lifetime of memories 
that did not happen to him that he does not have. And they're going to be like, remember in 11th grade when you went down yeah. the slip and slide and had diarrhea? And he's going to be like, no, I remember nothing of my life except getting a truck and being rich now. You know, like yeah. that's what do you know about your life? Well, I know that I got a nice truck and, you know. And that's, to me, the biggest refrigerator problem in the world. But again, it's the emotional thing. You don't care. Nobody's ever watched Back to the Future and been like, fix that, except for yeah. an asshole, you know? And again, it's at the end. Yeah, exactly. Like it makes a huge difference if it's at the end. Good point. What do you, when you, this this might be a provocative way to start this conversation uh, about you as a teacher, but it's something I think about a lot because um i i dated a woman who was a very successful novelist very very successful literary novelist she nominated for booker prize right okay. like very very high level and she never studied in any formal way she uh, i believe she didn't even go to college and i asked her once like do you feel like you missed out on something by not studying in school and she's somebody who was very sure of herself so her response was when you're when you're talented there's nobody that can help you right was yeah. her response to that and i think about that a lot and it was like i guess that's the measure of me being untalented is i need a lot of help learning and screenwriting and learning how to write in yeah. it um what do you what do you like what do you want students to get from it do you think you can like what's like what can you actually is it across a spectrum or do you want to take people who have some ability and refine it do you want to take people who don't know what they're doing at all and put them on a path is it all different kinds of things have you had like a genius in your class where you're just like anything i'm going to do is going to break this and i just need to tell them go do it uh, what what as a teacher like what do you want to do in terms of ability for people yeah. you know like what's your relationship to that yeah well it it is it, it is different for every student and there are students that just have no storytelling talent like yeah. they just don't have any storytelling talent and there's not much you can do yeah um, and you know they they're often there for fun or they want to be able to look at movies differently and yeah but um, I don't agree with the idea that if you're talented, there's nothing anyone can teach you like that hasn't been. I, I think there is some truth to it that the more talent you have, um, the less help you need. Like, I, I think yeah. that that is certainly true. Um, I know. And it also depends on like what your ambitions are and what you want. My my mentor was Edward Olby. Yeah. And and Edward uh was grotesquely talented. Yeah. And and did most of his work from a relatively raw place of just sheer talent. And he looked at the world differently, he heard the world differently. The things that he observed and saw and piqued his interest were different. He was he was just different. Um, and it unfortunately did not make him a very good teacher. Like he was yeah. not able to share much of what made him special with other people because he was just all raw talent. Yeah. And so he would make observations and, and he would help. And and and, and he was such a smart guy. 
And his greatest gift to me was just the confidence that I could do it. And I think that's a big part of being a teacher is, is can you deliver enough value that they eventually um, uh, write what they want to write in a way that gives them confidence that they're able to continue to write and be decisive about what they uh, are stories they're trying to tell. Yeah. And so a lot of what you're doing as a teacher is there is really uh, is you're simplifying. Like you're simplifying the process. You're trying to help people get out of their own way to stop overthinking certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, try to get them to make big decisions up front. So each subsequent decision is easier and easier. And, uh, you know, part of my own experience, like I'm very much self-taught when it comes to structure because mm-hmm. I was a playwright, I started out as a playwright and I was very into characters, very into dialogue, but I also love genre. So when I decided to kind of move from theater to film, I was really left on my own to try to figure out structure and how, why is film structure so much more disciplined than, 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 than the well the well-made play, you know, and that, that took me years. And I was very fortunate because I started making a living at it relatively early. And, and then about six or seven years as a professional, I started to kind of finally figure it out. And what really made me nervous about it was that I thought I knew what I was doing because I was being paid and I was making Thing. And so, of course, that's evidence that I'm very good at this. Yes. And then you realize, <laughs> no, I've actually just been kind of lucky a lot yeah. here and there. And I was very inconsistent. So a part of, of how I see it now is of, you know, teaching these, these ways to simplify things and teaching process because you really... Uh, you know, you learn process for, for two different reasons of, of having an, an ability to like uh, a step-by-step process for certain things, because for me, not being as viciously talented as some, like I'll never be as good as Quentin Tarantino. Like he is, he is his, his, his knowledge of film and his raw talent combined, you know, it's, there's just not going to be too many of us on the planet that are going to be able to do those things. And I'm not Edward, like, and that was a good thing being taught by Edward and just being accepting that very early that, Oh, I'm not a genius. Yeah. Like I'm not a genius. Yeah. That's for me is a lot of like, when I'm saying to the woman who's dating, like, that's great that you're a genius. I work in the same field. I still have to figure out how to do this somehow. What do I do? And it's not acceptable for you to me say, well, just do it. Just have it it pour out of your pores naturally. She never never required a process. Yeah. Like she never required it. So, but but I will also say sometimes I'll read her books and be like, these are so beautifully written. I'm an asshole for trying to be a writer. Like, you know what I mean? At yeah. Anyway, go on. Well, and that's the thing is like, and 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 to get rid of that com- that comparison thinking. Yeah. And and again of like, oh, because I remember when I was young because I came up into the business about like I was a few years behind Tarantino. Yeah. So your immediate sense is to be competitive and go, well, why him, not me? Like, yeah. Why is he making this money and I'm not making this money? Why are my checks so much smaller? Where am I? And is that really you just... Tarantino you think about that with or like Joe Esterhaus and uh, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, yeah, it was always. Yeah. But this, the, the, 
you you definitely have those people like with Tarantino. You're like, well, like eventually you just go, oh, well, like he's doing his own thing and he's yeah. so good at it. Like, I'm not that. But then you have those people of like, well, they're not that fucking good. Why are they like, like yeah. they're not anybody better than I am. And they're good. But so for me, that process is is one develop a process develop develop a way to do it because talent does not always show up yeah for me talent does not always show up and if you can have talent show up every single fucking day and you can write out a script or write a book and talents there at your access every day you probably don't need these processes you don't mm -hmm. uh, but for me, I know if I work five days, I'm lucky if I get two days where I'm in the zone. Yeah. Like the other three days I've got to work. I've I've gotta I've gotta push forward. I've got to problem solve. I've got to figure out how we get the alien onto the ship, you know, like yeah. it's coming to me naturally. I've got to figure it out. And so for me to make sure that my work is consistent, I have a I have develop certain amounts of process of of structure questions i have for characters value systems that i have of what is important and what isn't um you know how to make certain things a priority over others and then the other reason to have these processes is so when you write shit and you think it's great that day and you read it the next week and like oh god this is crap how do i rewrite it and if i'm trying to rewrite it with the same mechanisms i wrote it with i'm not going to fix it so yeah. like you fall back onto these because eventually you fall back to your training and edward god bless him edward was inconsistent yeah I like all not every play was who's afraid of virginia wolf you know yeah. not every play was seascape yeah. and he had a lot of clunkers in there because he had no process he was just just genius yeah just and, Drilling a hole in the air and pouring yeah. it out. Yeah. And Tarantino makes a movie every two or three years. Like yeah. he's got time to like, I don't have time. I got, I, I, my contract says 12 weeks. Yeah. I got to deliver something in 12 weeks. I don't have the Tarantino luxury of like, maybe next year I'll make a movie. Yeah. And then just kind of work it and rewrite it and get it straight and send it out to the greatest actors we have and get their thoughts. And yeah. like, like, it's just not. Yeah. Walk up to Paul Newman and be like, I wrote this for you and have him yeah. be excited. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, so I, it, I, I, I understand uh, her, her, uh, her thinking of it because that's yeah. her experience. But most working writers don't have that experience. Yeah. Most working writers have to have to learn how to do this. Now, that being said, if you have no talent at all, there's nothing you can do. Like at yeah. some point, talents gotta come up. But so much, so what? much of these processes are for me as a teacher of having to explain why I think this is better than this or why I do this this way. And having to verbalize it and explain it to someone because, mm -hmm. you know, I have to teach it. Now, all of a sudden, because I have now verbalized it, I've now turned that into a tool and a process. I like I now have access to it. So that process is 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 developed over having to explain this stuff to students over over you know yeah. 10 years and then 
And I've just been refining that process of how to teach it over the last 10 years. But, you know, like if you want to learn anything really or, you know, like teach it, like it, it is an amazing device to get so much better at something yeah. is to actually teach it to others. Um, and can I ask you, you said that there are things that are like, uh, in terms of priority, the things that are important and the things that aren't important in terms of, of process or script or ideas, not to go through that entirely, but like, could you give examples of what you mean specifically, like what's on one end of that spectrum that's important and unimportant when you were yeah. thinking of that, we, like just been, one example on each end. We've been talking a lot about it through this conversation of mm. plot is not that important. Yeah story is important. Uh, emotion is important. Like the two primary values that I teach that like are like are both your value system and your priorities and um, you know, how you do problem solving is the importance of story and the importance of emotion. And what I've done is because I've been teaching this for so long that I, I have my own definitions for all of these things mm -hmm. that, that, interlock with each other so like as you start to figure out and define your story then that starts to help you with your structure it starts to tell you like what the third act is going to look like and what the first act is going to look like and 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 then on top of that like your entire purpose of being a storyteller is to evoke emotion like this is your job that film is a em emotion generating machine and that's your deal with the audience of you know, they pay us money and in return, we evoke emotion yeah. and do it in such a way that they find it at the end of it emotionally satisfying. And that's, you know, like all structure is, is what the audience knows and when they know it like that, that's all it is. And it is not a prescriptive definition. It is essentially uh, a tool to achieve something else, which is narrative momentum and emotional resonance. Yeah. So as you start to write and you know my priority is defining what my story is and then every decision you make going through that decision like this is your story and i define story in my classes as the transformational journey of a human being mm -hmm. story is change story is transformation something is changing and so there are, are three primary types of story. One where the character changes for the better, and that's the most common mm -hmm. version of the story. Then the second one is where a character remains steadfast in their beliefs. And in doing so, they change all of those around them. And then the third type of story is someone changes for the worst or changes too late, and that is a tragedy. And so like knowing specifically what your story is and that's how you make those decisions of, okay, what's the first act? What's the midpoint? How are you interlocking this point with this point? And as you start writing these stories or these scenes or breaking down these scenes, these are your priorities. Like everything you have is going to move this character in this direction or it's going to push them back to where they were from or try to tempt them and divert them somewhere else. It's all the supporting characters have their job within that story, um, you know, every decision you make. And so making these big decisions up front 
What's the dramatic question? What's the plot-focused dramatic question? This is why Vice Squad is so good of just like yeah. how focused that primary dramatic question is, yeah. how simple it is. And the plot itself doesn't really matter. It's just the emotion of watching, like he says it out loud. We've got to find one or the other, or we've got a dead girl on our hands. And that's it. Like yeah. that's that's your plot. And everything else is just visceral emotion, 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 emotion. Um, that's, that's interesting. What, what you're saying to me reminds me a lot about um, when Crystal Skull came out, somebody asked Spielberg, of, like, do you feel pressure to cut your bay and cut your movie? Do you feel pressure to cut your movies in like the Michael Bay style that's popular now to have the cutting go faster and to to cut at a different speed than you have your whole career when you make an action movie? And he said, if you assemble the engine of your story correctly, it will feel fast no matter how you cut it. Right. Yeah. And I think about that all the time. And that ties into what you're talking about with Vice Squad, where that movie, I have no idea how fast or slow it cuts. No idea. You couldn't Slow. ask me average length of a shot in that film because the story feels so fast. The yeah. story feels so urgent that, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of it is just, and it's so low budget, are just like two shots, minimal coverage, yeah. you know, that they're getting through these scenes with just like three camera setups and that's all they're cutting between at most and a lot of them, you know? Yeah. It just has that feeling of the urgency of story to it that like they put that engine together right and it and it's it almost doesn't fucking matter how you shoot it you know yeah. this story that tension is there and and both films are filled with tension and yet such different types of tension <laughs> yeah. like um and the michael bay style like michael bay's trying to generate emotion through the editing because it's not there in the story like yeah. that's like that's what he's trying he's trying to manufacture mm -hmm. emotions because it's not actually there yeah through the story and the characters or you so could even say more kindly he's trying to augment it if it is there you know i don't think his his movies are completely worthless the way some people do oh, it depends what you know, film you're talking about yeah, the guy i can make a great yeah. movie if he wants to yeah. like there's never i mean like just going back to like bad boys is great the rock yeah. is great exactly uh, i thought and the ambulance was really good I think he kicked it a little bit and he didn't have to as much in ambulance as, as, yeah. he, as he did. Uh, he would have been without yeah. it. 27, was it 27 hours is really good. Oh, I didn't see that one. Uh, I just, I, yeah, I just didn't want him to, he's such like a popular whipping boy. I don't want to be like on here being like, and we too also think Michael Bay is dumb. Oh. Give us our credit. You yeah, know, yeah, like that's no, not I, what I meant I, to do with that comment. I agree with you. you know? I, I tend to think in terms of like when I bash Michael Bay, I bash his Transformers films because I do yeah. hate those. I legitimately but hate those movies. The reason you probably bash them is that they're stupid garbage for morons. That's yes. probably the reason yeah, yeah. that you have bad things to say about them. John, just real quick, would you take us through the plot of Vice Squad beyond, I mean, we basically set it, but just set yeah. up Vice Squad a little for us. Uh, so Vice Squad is set over one night on the Sunset Strip where a down-her-luck uh, Los Angeles businesswoman turned prostitute named Princess uh, runs afoul of a um, monster of a pimp named Ramrod uh, who has um, murdered a friend of hers, and so she is uh, approached by the Vice Squad, by the LAPD Vice Squad, led by Sergeant Tom Walsh. They want her to uh, help them to arrest him. You know, they want, to, want her to go in, wear a wire, and, and get him arrested, which she does 
but then he quickly escapes and uh, is on the fucking Kowalski. Kowalski, you idiot. (laughs) They should have used a patrol car. What could he do? (laughs) What could they do? I mean, we we learn pretty pretty early that Ramrod is not going to get held down. You know, like he is (laughs) such a freaking horrible force of nature. Pile four cops on him. He's just going to knock them off and just keep going. Like you just have to take, you have to put that guy down like a rabid dog. Um, so I don't blame them. I mean, who knew, <laughs> who knew he was going to do that? And this this movie is about uh, Wingshauser, correct? That's oh what God. this movie is. This is the Wingshauser show. He even sings the theme song, Baptized yeah. in the Neon Slime. It, it it feels like witnessing a person go insane. It's one of those all timer performances in a in a like low budget genre film that you're just like this is. It's easy to sound like a lunatic, being like, you know, Wingshauser and and Vice Squad, uh, D Wallace Stone and Cujo. These are like fucking falconetti and joan of arc type like mental breakdowns on screen type performances but it really is that kind of like transformatively like huge thing in the middle of this movie you know i i consider ramrod with without any hyperbole one of the great bad guys in cinema history no question no Uh, question it is it is a remarkable performance uh a rem- just a a uh, uh just a fearless characterization of a fucking psychopath who is amongst us if you look at this movie as a fable which i think people do he's the personification of the big bad wolf like yeah. <laughs> literally just and you know couldn't have like a more like threatening sexual energy oh. on screen than this yeah. guy does which is, you know, runs great in contrast to Princess herself, played by Susan Hubley, who, you know, you believe can handle herself out on the street, who you believe, yeah. you know, is always going to come out on top. And she just withers, you know, when he's got her in his clutches, you know, she's just... She never out. withers. She, she fights back. She claws his face. That's part of the problem is that you feel like fighting him is making him stronger that's what makes the character so terrifying is that like this is what he's after he's the he's the true you know it's a funny thing i always think about you know people are always like ah if there's a bully just punch him in the face the bully doesn't want to fight they're picking on the weak people no the bully is always the kid who wants to fight above all things and he doesn't care whether he wins the fight or not in some level what he wanted was to fight you know, and I think that this is the personification, uh, the embodiment of bully as like a concept, you know, of like the bully spirit where her fighting back, her refusing to go down and be broken is is energizing him constantly, you know, that that he's energized by her fierceness and capability and sort of like 
uh, feminine strength and grace in the face of the indignity of life and and the sexual impositions of the world that are placed on women. That's exactly what he wants to break. That's what he's interested in breaking. So every time she fights back, that's that's like, you know, it's like feeding into his power, which is what makes it terrifying. You know, it's the things she's doing to save herself are like you realize it's just gasoline on him, which is what's horrifying. You know, I'm, I'm surprised Steven Seagal all movies came up twice in this conversation well but... he's so bill sorcise from out bill for justice Forsyth from out for justice exactly that like that belief that you know this is social rules society doesn't exist you just do what you want to do like, yeah you go out there and just behave how you want to behave and the choice of behavior is destruction yeah just one night careening towards suicide you know, uh, it's it's very similar. It's funny. Of course, you and I both thought of Out for Justice with this. Yeah, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I had forgotten it, but that's a really it's a good comparison. Um, it's also a, a funny comparison. Um, uh, I kept on thinking of this movie. It's like the evil twin of Angel. Have you ever seen Angel? The the famous I poster? Still, believe it or not, I've not seen Angel after all this time. I still have not seen Angel. You should. It's it's a great like. LA on the strip in the 80s sleaze movie but it's like so sweet it's about the community of all of these outsiders and weirdos with no ramrod in it it's like what if you made this movie without ramrod you know it's like the scene where all the where the like rainbow gang of, of prostitutes is hanging out in the bar talking about their johns that's like the whole movie that's like all of angel you know it's got a ramrod in it it's got uh like a like a murderous character in it. oh yeah but he's such a yeah you're, he's you're right compared to ramrod but i, I yeah, still I mean, remember who, the ad who is who is ramrod compared to angels billy <laughs> sorry i mean the writer director of angels one of the credited writers of by squad yes <laughs> really yes we should talk about sandy howard because yes, i he, yeah he, and and is it sandy he or she it's a he it's a he yes yeah, he must howard. have just liked that world I mean, like, um, a, but no, like no, it came Robert out like the same time. Robert Vincent O'Neill is the is the writer director of Angel. Oh well, Sandy Howard produced Angel. Ah, so Sandy okay. Sandy Howard is like feels like one of the driving forces on Vice Squad to me, which we can get into. For example, I think he's the reason John Alcott shot it, which we which we can get into later. John Alcott, obviously uh, the DP of of Kubrick's best films, and and his worst. I don't know. I got all of them. <laughs> But um, but you're right. Yeah. Yes, the producer of Captain Kangaroo. Well, he got it. Well, that's fucking weird. Sandy Howard started out doing Howdy Doody and Kangaroo. Um, he did the Burt Lancaster Moreau. He was one of those guys in the '70s who like dabbled in everything. You know, he did a couple of like disaster films. He did Meteor and City on Fire. Um, he did Circle of Iron, uh, which is the movie that Bruce Lee famously wrote to star in, and then after he died, it was rewritten by Sterling Siliphant. Um, but he um, he did Night Train, which John Alcott shot, and Triumph of a Man Called, Called Horse, which Alcott also shot. And he was like the Man Called Horse guy. Like he executive produced all of the Man Called Horse movies. And I think that he brought, like he slowly brought Alcott along to Vice Squad through those movies. That well, that's I'm glad they did. It's in. a beautifully shot movie. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's that it's the quintessential neon slime movie. Either this or Night of the Juggler. Did they did they hose down those streets every shot? Like every street shot is wet. I mean, like it's just 
it's so disgusting when the um when the the uh prostitute in pink gets beat up and thrown in the trash and is like crawling along the street and you're like this is i couldn't ask an actor to do that i couldn't ask an actor to crawl through that la filth like it's just it's it looks so disgusting and it's so wet all the time and it's just like everything is like i hope that's mushed up cardboard not feces like every time you see anything in this movie you know um disgusting world you would not want to (laughs) be knee deep in the neon slime um Tom, what do you like about this movie? I've stolen the mic to extol the virtues of of oh, Ice Squad. And what don't I like about this movie? Like it, it is, it is. You know, like we talk about like how how sloppy the writing is and dead and buried. Yeah, of, of like like they got away with it because they did certain <laughs> things right and like certain things worked. Uh, the writing in Vice Squad is incredibly efficient, like just incredibly precise. There's no wasted scenes. You can make a debate of like these little comic moments. Do they fit in there or not? Like what are like what are they doing in there? <laughs> Which I'm fine with. I've grown affectionate towards them. So, but uh, just the sheer simplicity of it. Of here's your setup. This person dies. This is what we're gonna do about it. And then oh shit we've got to find one of these people. And it's just, it's almost episodic from that point on of like, here's her next stop. Here's her next stop. But he's getting progressively more violent. He's getting more psychotic. And you just feel like you can just tell they're getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, But like every scene she's doing is, is interesting. And I always felt like, cause I, I know some people have like, oh, this is this is like the real sleaze of like the 80s sleaze yeah. movies. And like, but like, I'll be honest, I felt like the violence is unflinching, but the sexuality, like they don't go as deep into the sleaze of the sexuality as they could. Like they could easily examine, like they hint at it, like that little boy being traded off. Yeah. Like they hint at it here and there, but it's, it's, I want to suck on your toes. I was like, well, I know that that happens, I'm sure. But that's a little whimsical compared to like what people are asked. Well, let me ask you guys. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go on, John. No, because when we were talking about the sucking on the toes, that made me think of something, but go on. I was going to say, it's surprising how non-judgmental this movie is. For It's like Angel. Yeah, this is made like broad stereotypes as it has, you know, or like kind of like over the top characters. It really does not have, it does not condemn Princess for her lifestyle. No. None of these people that they run into who aren't, you know, other than the overt criminals, obviously, like violent criminals. Um, and even the cops, you know, it has like a real compassion for like the characters in this movie that you run into, which I feel makes it work. And that beautiful, just that beautiful three tracks of, Princess Ramrod and uh, Tom and the and the um, Vice Squad, yeah, which, you know, kind of cutting back and forth. It just it works so so well, uh, and and time. top to bottom, the acting in this movie is superb. I mean, just top to bottom, like the supporting roles, the Johns, yeah, uh, like there. And I I and I wondered about this because I I 
I don't think the acting today is as good. Like I really, for sure. I really feel like if you now, okay, I say the acting, but is it the casting? Like, is it the yeah. casting? There's because, not mugs anymore. People yeah. don't find mugs and no, weirdos to yeah. put on film. Yeah, like their faces aren't there. It's it's like they're not interesting faces. I'm sure the acting is fine, but like you're if you're beautiful and you're gorgeous and you're on the CW or whatever, like you're just going to bring something different than a weird face and an interesting face and a face that has years on it that will have like heartbreak on it. And yeah. I'm asking to suck on your toes because, you know, like 60 yeah. years have been rough on me. And yeah. like, I never, you know, like it, it just top to bottom, the acting everywhere in this movie is superb. Like they did not fuck around. And and I'm interested because you guys apparently have some stories of like how this got made. Cause I was always curious of did they mean to make such a good film? Like when they started this idea and it started kind of rolling into place, like was their idea to go, we're going to make a great movie? Or was it we're gonna feed the monster? We're gonna do like a Hollywood Boulevard sex movie. And like what what was it? Because they ended up making a genuinely great movie uh, and surprising. I, I don't know why Gary Swanson wasn't a bigger star. I know he's still teaching acting out there. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know why he wasn't a bigger star. He's very charismatic, very interesting to watch. Those scenes, that scene where like, he's giving her the offer and shoves her face and ginger ginger's yeah. corpse like the performances from everyone it like like just well, even like i was thinking watching this time the uh who took my paper clips guy is given but he's given like an extra beat to it's no longer funny and you're like he's upset and stressed out it plays yeah. the joke and he's given more time by sherman to take it out of a punchline sitcom to be like that place is probably incredibly stressful to work it's and it's mad yeah and it manifests in a weird way it becomes like a goofball thing that would have been like a fucking terrible moment in bringing out the dead by Martin Scorsese, right? Yeah. Which this movie is superior to. I think we can all agree on that. It would have been like a terrible comedic moment in that movie. Like the performance is given more time to breathe and, and, yeah. and, and de-stress and, um, demonstrate the stress and to to take it beyond the joke, the sort of broad overdone part of it, even going back to like, the woman who has track marks in the jail when they return to her later and he's like get her to a hospital yeah, right, yeah. it's it's incredible how much care the movie has for the characters on screen and wants to follow their narratives through all the way and once and wants to take them seriously you yeah. know there is an attention to detail and attention to emotional moments and uh just even like when Ramrod talks his way into that door, into the motel. Yeah. His ability. And how one of like, yep, that's that's what that's how an abuser talks. That's yeah. like what an abuser does. That's what an abuser says. And then when she opens the door 
And that just, you see that storm of violence and how big he is, how powerful he is. And his first line to her is, I can't believe how stupid you are. Yeah. And and it's just like, as soon as he enters that motel and you see how terrifying this man is. Yeah. Like, you know, you're in a different movie than you expected. Yeah. You know, like you are in something else. He's genuinely terrifying and not hamming it up, you know, just emotionally sincere every moment and fucking scary. Yeah. Because you might run into someone like that. Yes. And, you know, like everyone at some point begs Ramrod not to kill them. You know, like every single person at some point goes like, please, Ramrod, like the subjects being, please don't kill me. Don't cut off. And like his ability to explode into violence, have no remorse, have no second thought about it. But Uh, then also to slip away when like Ronnie is like threatening him, he shrinks away. Like he just slips out of it. Like he knows when to turn it off to like get out of whatever jam he's in. You know, like he's not out of control. He's so in control. Yeah. So in control of it, which is even more terrifying, is that like he he can just slip through your fingers at all time. He's not like a beast that everybody sees and is like, we got to put that beast down. He's a guy that's constantly just slipping through and turning it on and off. There's that terrifying moment where he sits down with Princess and it's not even terrifying. It's repulsive where he just sort of grabs her and slaps her a little and goes, you like that bitch? I know you do. Right. And then goes back to being normal. And it's just like such a terrifying moment of like revelation, but taking it back. Like, did you even feel like gaslighting? Like I didn't even do anything wrong. Like, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything wrong. You know, like I was, I was flirting with you, you know, that kind of feel to it that's like brief glimpse turns it off you know just so slippery such an incredible and also just how big his hands are around her neck like 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 he could snap that fucking neck like like says and i also i'm really curious of just now that you mentioned that of how does he talk to a woman who's not in the game like who's not like how does he how does he even know how to deal with people that aren't on the street no, because he's a predator. He's going yeah. after them. You know, he's going after people who won't be missed if he goes too far and destroys them. You yeah. know, that's that's all he's interested in is the, is the things he can get away with in a, in a very, uh, very palpable way. When you ask, do I think if do, did they intend to set out and make a good movie? I, I'm not sure of the answer to that question. Sandy Howard seems to be like the driving force behind it. Mm-hmm. And he was a trend chaser. You know, yeah. he he's making Captain Kangaroo when he's young. He's making yeah. he's making disaster movies in the late 70s when they're in vogue. He's involved with the Bruce Lee movie when that's at the height of its power. And then he's making sort of genre films. And uh, in the late 70s, he's making horror movies when that's what's happening. And then he's making this when sort of this this era, the Death Wish era films, you know, the Defiance Death Wish you know, era of um, urban vigilante type movies, you know, uh, although this doesn't doesn't fall into that category. It's it's a neighbor to that kind of thing. And I, I don't know if he was always trying to make good movies, but he's not churning out junk 
all of his movies, I would say, attempt to be good movies. And he's very, very hit and miss. He's very, very hit and miss, whether those movies are good or not. But he's definitely getting John Alcott because he thinks John Alcott's going to make it fucking look great. Like, I think that's not a mistake on his part. And I think that Gary Sherman, for sure, every single time Gary Sherman's trying to make a good movie. And I think that's why he gets his heart broken over and over again, because you're you want to make a good movie. You've also just gotten hired to make Poltergeist three. Like you've got, you've got to know they, they are not interested in making the best possible Poltergeist three. They can, you know, (laughs) it's funny. You as a screenwriter would appreciate this story. I shouldn't say his name, but a friend of mine uh, of, of a few years ago now had a film that won South by Southwest. And he got like uh, signed to UTA, like the next day kind of thing. And he was brought in to like uh, pitch to direct movies, right? And they wanted to hear his pitches on this one film where there was a script and they're like, hey, we have this script that's greenlit, but the script has a lot of problems. What would you do to fix this script? And he was like, well, we do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. And I think we moved this around. And like, they were like, great. We we love your ideas on it. We want to hire you to direct the film. And he's like, oh, are we going to make those changes? And the executive said, no, we're greenlit. It's ready to go. And he said, you don't want to make the best movie possible. And she's like, it's greenlit. We can't fuck around with the script now. And he said, you don't want to make the best movie possible. And she goes, it's not that kind of a movie. <laughs> and I think that you have to know when you when you get into stuff, when you get into Poltergeist 3 and Dead and Buried, that like what they're about is something different. Yeah. I think this might be the only film where the producer was like, go for it, make the best fucking yeah. movie you can. And I think yeah. that's why it's a standout from his other stuff, from an interesting filmography. It's the standout from it. Uh, I think for that reason would be my guess. This is all speculative. This is all like detective work on my part. And yeah, you know, maybe I'll get an email like three weeks from now. That's like, I'm Sandy Howard. And I will tell you, I am an <laughs> asshole who wanted to make a piece of shit. How dare you? You know, kind of thing. Who the hell knows? But that's how it feels to me is that yeah. is that he was finally told, like, go do it, man. You want the guy who shot 2001? We got him. You yeah. know, like you want you want Wingshauser to, you know, go uh, undercover with like pimps and the police for like three months. We'll we'll fund it. We'll send them out there. Yeah. You know, like they they got they got the money. To, you want Wingshauser to record the theme song? Put him in the studio, you know, like whatever he wanted to do to just to just go through with it. It does feel like they were able to go for it. I, I think yeah. it's palpable throughout this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's they cared, you know, yeah. you can just tell by the performances. Yeah. Just tell by the performances. They they cared, you know, like it, and uh, I, I like I said, I, I would like to have seen if anything um, of maybe get into the muck a little bit more yeah you know, rather than some of the whimsical yeah you know johns uh but, but that same- that reminds me of my question which we didn't which i didn't get to ask before which of you guys talking about the johns what you know you said who who's the driving force in this movie my question would be what's your guess who do you think involved in this production was the huge belle de jour fan to recreate that scene from Belle de Jour with the with the bride and the guy in the casket, which is from Belle de Jour. Like who, John, what's your guess? Who put that in there? It's gotta be Sherman, right? Like the screenwriter can't have been like, one of the Johns will just be the John from Belle de Jour, will just be the Duke from Belle de Jour, but flipped. So 
you know, he's in the casket instead of her being in the casket. It had to be Sherman, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see like the original shooting script of, uh, of Dead and Buried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, because like now that I say that, like you've got such a heavy and such a psycho and ramrod, like maybe yeah. you need a little more lightness with the Johns, you know, because you do get that one guy who steals the money. And and he's even he's even more disgusting than Ramrod in some ways. Be you feel even more helpless in that scene, you know, yeah. because it feels like that's her life day in and day out. It's not every yeah. day Ramrod's coming to kill her, but those those fucking guys, you know. Well, yeah. In contrast, you got Dorsey, that her former pimp, the oh, marshmallowy guy that <laughs> Ramrod attacks, and it's like, and I don't know why I just felt Dorsey. so bad for the guy. I like I like. Just because I guess because like we don't see he's a sh- which I don't like I don't know what a sugar pimp is yeah I don't, I don't know what a sugar pimp is me neither um but like he says that's what's wrong with you sugar pimps or like whatever you know <laughs> like I don't know I don't so I don't know what that is but um when he like he just went to his door he was just hanging out at home that night you know like he wasn't out in the street hurting anybody it looked like he was watching TV <laughs> you know like just yeah. Watch watching the late show or something and just opens his door and then it's basically um uh, henry of portrait of a serial killer you know it's basically like you know that kind of thing and i think that that's i think it's i think it's actually funny i don't know why that movie popped in my head but like wings hauser should have had a michael rooker-esque career built off of this thing you know it's it's that level of like force of nature performance yeah and and his career is very interesting of just he started in the soaps i know that i don't know if he was a heavy in the soaps or no he was like a a a teary faced wet-eyed wimp in the soap operas was he really yeah they had to like um they they um fucking Sherman really, really wanted him for this movie. And the producers were like, no way. He's that fucking pussy from the soaps. He are, That's funny. Let me not say that. He's that freaking wimp from the soaps. We can't, we can't cast him. And they like had to convince him. And apparently he just came into the audition as Ramrod and was like throwing chairs and threatening to murder people. And they were like, I guess you're hired. So you won't kill us. Soaps. Um, and I know he made a, a couple more movies about this same level. Yeah. Um, and of course, his son is is uh, a slightly, you know, even more accomplished actor than he is. Yeah. Uh, as far as just working and making money. Yeah. He was in he was in Mel Gibson's paparazzi. That's what we all know Cole Hauser for. Yeah. You know, Wings had developed. Um, uh, oh, man. Oh, what's the Milius movie? Uncommon Valor. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, that was his idea. That was his pitch. What? And it ended up getting, yeah. And Gary Sherman was going to direct it. That's the reason that uh, Martin Scorsese um, had that, that famous anecdote that Gary Sherman loves to tell, that they were considering him as the director of Uncommon Valor. And the head of uh, whichever studio was dating Martin Scorsese at the time and, was, and watched Vice Squad to see who this guy was and was like, it's the most revolting disgusting thing I've ever seen. I would never hire this guy. And Scorsese then apparently said, you don't know what you're talking about. It's the best film of the year. It should win the Oscar for best picture. (laughs) 
Ah, uh, that's anyway, Wingshauser, amazing. Wingshauser hates John Milius, has nothing but terrible things to say about him for stealing his movie away from him. Apparently. Oh, that's weird. John Milius is so beloved in Hollywood. <laughs> nothing but amazing stories of how lovely he is to work with. That catches me off guard. Same for Wingshauser. Two, two of Hollywood's most beloved, oh, yeah. beloved sugar pimps, those two guys. But this movie obviously has some high-profile fans. I mean, Demi and Scorsese and uh, tell me David Lynch hasn't seen this movie when he wrote Frank Booth for Blue Velvet, you know? Yeah, I had no idea. Tormenting uh, it's so interesting. I, I I really spent so much time thinking I'm the only one who even knew it existed. <laughs> the internet has has really disabused me of this notion of like what I think is a small boutique movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, sure. Like, like growing up, you're like you think you're the only one who knows and gets it. Yeah. It, like you get on Twitter and then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, I, I'm actually in comparison quite ignorant of, of of all these great movies. Well, that's what's funny before we recorded this episode. I was saying to John, like, there's people who really love Gary Sherman. I'm not sure we know enough to talk about Gary Sherman on an episode, even like to the extent we're talking about him for hours now. I was like, I, I don't know. Should we have feel like we should have brian sour on here to talk yeah, about this yeah with Tom, yeah but you know? sometimes but it's also it's a good it's a good um uh uh example of because it's not always the data it's not always the information obviously like just what we're talking about with plot and emotion like any data you give in any history you give in it's really designed just to ignite something else. Like it's really just to ignite of like a reaction to that. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I can talk about Gary Sherman for what is it? Three hours now, <laughs> even though I know so little about him, yeah. but I do know how he's made me feel over the years. And I do know how these moments affected me. And I do know how inspired I am uh by by these creations of his so i can keep talking you know i can yeah. keep going off so i mean maybe it's good that we don't know much about gary sherman because it directs us to a different part of the conversation yeah. which is um you know talking about the effect of these movies on us of like why i love this movie so much uh, like like seeing it on like it's a perfect film for VHS for Christ's sake yeah you know like it is such a VHS movie like low resolution kind of grimy but it's also a real joy of now seeing it in HD and I notice things I didn't notice before of like oh how gross that street is and oh my god that guy's got a cat on his shoulder while he's being <laughs> that's <laughs> like, an amazing moment that's yeah, like I've oh never, my god I've never seen that cat before. Uh, well, and Sherman, and Sherman and this, is, go ahead. I was going to say Sherman is the perfect director to uh, discover on VHS. He's the kind of director who you don't put the films together until someone says, "Oh yeah," and yeah. also he directed Deathline. You're like, "Oh, he did? Really? Yeah." Oh, I turns out I'm a fan of this guy without yeah. even yeah. realizing it. Wanted um, Dead or Alive, <laughs> which we yeah. haven't even mentioned. That's a fun movie. Well, this is this is where I want to drop because I got to mention it somewhere. My favorite Gary Sherman movie is Lisa, the movie he made in 1990. I still haven't seen it. Oh, it's see, good. I mean, it's the kind of film. It's funny. It's the kind of film you can't recommend to people because it is such a small thing. You know, it's. It's yeah. a delicate thing, really. A very intimate kind of thing. It's not like a great, grand, epic film. Yeah. But it's it's just so 
beautifully made. It's just so perfectly made, greatly acted uh, film that I just love. Um, and then it wasn't until I watched some of these films together in these last few weeks uh, leading up to this that I, I noticed, you know, there's Lisa Blount, whose character is called Lisa in mm-hmm. uh, Dead and Buried. And she's like this, you know, very sexual character. And then the uh, princess's daughter is Lisa in this movie. Oh, the one that she has to protect. Yeah. From, you know, the, se- uh, the all the sexuality that she is a part of every night. And then Lisa is a movie about this young woman named Lisa and her, you know, kind of coming to terms with like her sexual awakening. And it's like, huh, that's the kind of thing where I'd be like, it's got to be a coincidence, right? It's it's, it's Gary Sherman. I don't yeah. think that like he was yeah. thinking like, I'm also going to like, you know, Lisa's going to be all over these things. Like, I can't imagine that he had that in mind. But you, you can't uh, help kind of put it together once you see these movies. Do you know what the name Lisa means? I don't. Devoted to God. I don't know why I know that. But huh. at any rate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Gary Sherman's trying to say something by having his his heroines be devoted to God. Although in Dead and Buried, she ain't devoted to God. Is that Lisa? Not at all. Not at all. Neither is, neither is the one in the 1990 Lisa. Oh my God. I think it's just a name he liked, John. <laughs> <laughs> that would be As a screenwriter, that's a screenwriter question for you. How do you feel about, there's a lot of screenwriting people that I feel like agonize over those details. Like, what are we going to name them? Um, do you do you feel like what's your relationship to that part of the process? What's the advice you give? Do you say those details are really important and will help focus you, or do you say don't worry about them at the start? Are you like Neil LeBute who just names their characters man one, man two, woman one, woman two? Yeah, I I I've never had any interest. I I had an all that jazz poster over over my desk for a few years and. Uh, a lot of the names came from the credits of all that. <laughs> and, so many characters named Bob. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've got the apartment above my desk now. So there's there's a lot of a lot of names named after that. Uh, choose me. So it's really like, what what poster <laughs> do I have on my wall? You're pulling a Kaiser Soze. You're just looking at what's <laughs> yeah. nearby to name yourself. Yeah. So I, I've never had that. I, I just needed. That's why all my not... characters are named John Minsrum. Sorry, <laughs> gone. I'm in trouble because I have an Uncle Boomy poster closest to me. I can't use those. <laughs> names. Yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could see that that all that jazz poster now because I could. Because I, I could look at the names and go like, oh yeah, I use that and backup. I use that <laughs> one. <laughs> and it's I'm in my my U of H office now, so I can't look at it. Um, back to Dan O'Bannon, there's his method when he wrote the Alien script, which is all the characters were totally generic, and he even wrote at the beginning, they could be male or female, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love it. <laughs> that's uh, interesting. That gives the filmmaker so much discretion to cast it out in an interesting way, though. But again, that feels like really playing with fire in the same way Dead oh, and yeah. Buried is, you know? Yeah, I, I, my relationship with the directors has gotten so poor over the years that, um, I, like, I, I don't, I, I don't. No, you're, you're talking about like that. Like, we can't make those re, those rewrites because they're gonna. Yeah, it's a greenlit movie. Like, yeah. I've had a director take a greenlit movie and decide and wrote us into development for two or three years. Oh like, God. Like, I can't it, even imagine. Oh I would, I would, I would turn into fucking Ramrod on him. I'd be like, oh "What's his God. location? Oh. One of us is dying tonight." Yeah, I'm, I'm I, taking so you to my. Uh, you know, I've had ten movies made at this point. And I'm not yeah. particularly happy with any of them. 
So I've got two, two that got, you know, God willing for next year that I, that I feel like will be, you know, close to what I've written and I like the directors on it. And so far I've been really good relationships. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I, I, the idea of like giving any, any flexibility and like male or female, even though like, if anything is going to be alien, I mean, like that, that seems like they're like, it really didn't matter who was who. Yeah. Yeah. That also uh, seems that like the classic, like Hollywood production in the sense of that, like it takes everybody on that set to make that a masterpiece and there's no one person you point to and said that's the one who put us over the top it's just yeah. like you have you have the best person in every role from top to bottom the best person money can buy yeah and you're, and you're spending every dollar on it it is it is such a luxury to make a movie and everybody in it is spectacular like vice squad is 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 you know just an example of um how much care went into the casting how good of a job everyone did how everyone committed and just like you you don't you every single one of those people could have phoned it in yeah and it and no one would have blamed them you know everyone would be like yeah yeah yeah, you know but because no one did and because the performances are so good of just like even that first time when ramrod is is with princess and and her having to like have a decent face when he's looking at her and then unable to like keep in her disgust when he's not because like this man who just murdered your friend is kissing you and acting Mm. like, like it's so good. And then like when he's got that bar stool and he's hitting her, like she's dead already. She's Mm. dead. She's dead. Like just, uh, I've seen so many movies where just one or two bad performances and, and you, and you know, like, okay, well, not everyone cared, not everyone. Yeah. And, and it, and it does take its toll. There's nothing, there's nothing like that here. Do you think it's rawness is like uh, one of the reasons that makes it so good. I mean, compared to dead and buried where it kind of gets, buried in its mystery a little too much kind of gets clouded and sort of like trying to make everything mysterious and trying to solve what's going on this just has like just complete straightforward every character we know what they want we know where yeah. they're going we know you know where they're going to end up just as a very kind of like broad statement of like a plot oh yeah it's just it's it's and and like i said like that moment he gets into that motel like you know what ride you're on you know, and I, there was a producer I was working with. He had the rights to a uh, 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 Robert Block book, um, and it was seventies in mm-hmm. uh, in in L.A. And my first take was like, if we can make something like Vice Squad out of this, if yeah. we can, <laughs> because it was they were searching for they were searching for somebody. Uh, and so like, I was like, okay, like what's, what's my version of vice squad to like, get like searching through some, to try to find someone within a 24 hour period in LA, that story, um, like you kill for ideas like this, that are this simple of what does the character want? Why is it hard to get? What are the stakes? Yeah. (laughs) 
Like this movie is so, and the stakes are as high as they can be. This psycho is going to kill her. Yeah. Who? What do we want? We want to find her or him. We'd be fine with either one. Yeah. And tracking, and like like you said, of just such a simple raw story. And so now you're just focused on this scene. What is yeah. this scene going on right now? And uh, every scene has such effective tension. And again, just going back to the performances of uh, when he beats the shit out of the guys in the car, of how raw and violent yeah. that is. Great and stunts, great stunts, yeah. Yeah, how violent that wreck is. When he just the- pushes himself out the front windshield, yeah. it's fucking awesome like this movie is full of things that you watch and you're like that's fucking awesome yeah uh and then now he's got to go guy with this with like and it's the only time because even when like he's like the cops are arresting him he's beating the shit out of the cops like it takes (laughs) it takes five of them to pin him pin him down oh one thing we should mention is when when they're pinning him down he puts the gun in his mouth and says make my day yep you know a few years before sudden impact Yep. Uh, and but that time where he's he's handcuffed and yeah. the guy puts the saw on Ramrod's neck and like you mentioned, yeah. he bails out. But then the next time we see that guy, the cops have got a gun to his head. And so like throughout the movie, everyone is alternating power positions of like getting their ass kicked, helping someone getting their ass kicked. They're in power in this scene. They're without out of power, which is just the whole power dynamic of, you know, I never thought of this till now, but just of life on the street where everything is raw power. Like who's got power in the moment and who's without it. Uh, And do you have a pimp or are you outlaw? And if you are outlaw, then some guy can beat you up and take your money. But if you got the power of a pimp, then they're they're too scared to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Except poor, um, Dor- except poor Dorsey. He's at the very bottom of the feeding. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom, do you have any thank you for coming and talking about this movies? This was really fun to have an excuse to watch them again and and dig into them in some way. You know, they're they're uh, movies I, I like obviously quite a bit and it was it was a really good time talking to you and 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 for having you talk about them so yes. thanks so much for for having me i i um uh I, i'm so happy to be able to talk about it try to get new people to see it there is a really beautiful um uh shout edition of it yeah uh, that's got some great commentaries on it some great documentaries on it it's really really worth checking out I haven't listened to Gary Sherman commentaries, I think, for the same reason you mentioned that. Do I want to know much about Gary Sherman? (laughs) Yeah, I got to get on his Instagram. I'm so getting on his Instagram. I had no idea. (laughs) He's not a prolific poster by any stretch of the imagination. But uh... (laughs) he's not creating content. (laughs) Exactly. He's not a content creator on Instagram, moving to moving to short form videos on TikTok. (laughs) Oh, let me uh, just say too, congratulations on uh, you know WGA, you know striking a deal. I hope yeah, it's favorable for everybody. You know, I hope that yeah, it is. I I couldn't be happier. Uh, I I was very very fortunate because I um I I was in in Houston and I actually had uh, one of my scripts. The option uh, uh ran out, and so they had to even though it was in the middle of a strike, they had to pay me for for the screenplay. Yeah. 
otherwise I would have got the rights back and God forbid the the screenwriter get the rights back. So they they had to write me a check. So I I was I was really one of the lucky ones uh, that I I was okay through the whole thing. Uh, and I went out to uh, to L.A. for a couple of days to go strike and get on the on the lines. And there's guys there. There are people there, writers, men, women, their kids have been out there three times a week, five times a week. Uh, just just incredible, an incredible devotion. And I, I, I have so much gratitude towards them uh, uh, for it. Uh, but but son of a bitch, we won. You know, right like, on, right we on. We didn't get everything, but we everything we were striking about was addressed. Every single awesome. thing we were striking about, like so. Obviously, we would have loved to get more points here, get this there, you know. But it, it, it was a remarkable experience. It was my second strike, um, and this one was was much more profound. So, um, uh, thank you, thank you. We're <laughs> we're all very excited and and happy to get back to work and let's get SAG signed. Absolutely. Congratulations again. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Tom, for coming on. And uh, this is a lot of fun talking about these movies. Go see Lisa, but pretend I didn't recommend it. Pretend like you just found it on your own. I will mention that to my wife, that I just found this title. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night, everybody. Thank you so much. 